1: What do you like listening
2: to? Um chart music.
3: Chart
2: music. Hey up you pup! Praised youngsters and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that puts the wide front of intelligent commentary and analysis around the pendulous dogs bollocks that is a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host... I'll need them, but so fucking what? It's always about the people who are the wind beneath my wings, and those people are Sarah B. Good morning, and Simon Price. Hello. How are we, my dears?
4: Like the wicked witch of the west, I'm melting, melting, because I cannot. Yeah, I I have that kind of pale, freckly Welsh skin that can't handle uh, this kind of temperature. Yeah, I'm I'm doing that typical goth thing of bitching about the the warm weather while everyone else is having a lovely time.
1: That's that's the ginger gene, apparently. You don't need to have ginger hair to have the ginger gene, because I've got it as well. Oh, right. It's the kind of pale pale freckly kind of thing yeah no I'm in here uh, windows closed blinds down jobs are good un. let's
2: do it right Pop Crazy Youngsters we are not fucking about this week. we have got a lot to get through in this episode so before we go any further it's time once again to initiate the latest batch of Pop Crazy Youngsters who were official members of our gang by dint of getting their hands in the pockets and kicking some dollar in on our Patreon account at patreon.com slash chart music this time they are Oh, Tim Young, Steve Clock, Simon Trina, Simon Galloway, Sean Barnum, Ali M, Mike Melia, Paul Gill and Neil Cately. Oh God, you're ace, you are. Aren't they
4: nice? They're
2: lovely, lovely people, aren't they? I,
4: I feel like we're just starting to pick up, in a way. Um, yeah. I actually, for the first time this week, met some pop-crazed youngsters in the wild.
2: Oh, yes, you did. Yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah, I was I was out at um my girlfriend's club night called Total Blam Blam at the Hotel Pelerocco in Brighton, and there was a couple called, co- I'll give a shout-out, Ian and Lydia from Bournemouth, originally from Mould in North Wales. Oh,
2: yeah. um, hey up, Ian and Lydia.
4: God bless yeah. you, Governor. They were so nice. And they, they came up to me and just said, just want to say, I love the Chart Music Podcast. And th- th- I don't know about you, Al, but that's the first time that's happened to me. And it no. just really, it, you know, it really made it all seem worthwhile. Um, I thought about initiating some bummer dog bants, but then I yeah. thought, I don't really know these people well enough yet. So maybe no. we'll save that for the second meeting.
2: Yeah, Yeah, it sounds like a code word, doesn't it? When you just go, (laughs)
1: bummer dog
2: at someone. Yeah, not very subtle
4: one either.
1: Yeah, bummer dog, definitely a third date thing, I would say.
2: (laughs) So yeah, that's all good. But, you know, we can still do better. So if you are one of the people who've been enjoying these podcasts and you haven't forked out on Patreon yet, well, you know, that's okay. That's fair enough. You know, we've all got reasons. But I just want you to picture me standing in front of you right now pulling the waistband of my G-string right out, giving you a pleading look in my eyes and whispering, stuff it in, good
4: and hard.
2: (laughs) So, this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us all the way back to August the 31st, 1995. Um, I've got to thank somebody whose name I can't mention because uh, it's it's an under-the-counter job for this episode. Uh, some bloke just got in touch with me and said, got some 90s episodes of Top of the Pops if you want them. And uh, I said, fuck yes.
4: Did he have like a long trench coat and like whipped it open and there are all these kind of like files hanging down?
2: Yeah, remember in the 80s when you, you know, there was that one video rental shop on the estate <laughs> where if you, if you ask the right bloke if you got anything under the counter... Uh, you, you'd get slipped something that you thought was going to be properly hardcore and it turned out to be Jungle Burger or some bollocks like that. <laughs> well, this is a, a modern-day equivalent. So that bloke, thank you very much. You know who you are. But yeah, August the 31st, 1995. This is uh, the aftermath of the Battle of Britpop, isn't it? Very much so, yeah. yeah. And we're going to spend the next uh, few hours um, kind of like going through the rubble and uh scavenging vital material and uh you know looting a corpse or two I feel
4: yeah we're going to be ripping open um bags sacks with uh with UN stenciled on the side yeah. looking for
2: grain to sustain us yes, through the coming def- winter definitely yes yeah. so let's flip things around a little bit we usually say this a bit later on in the podcast but but for this time let's get this out of the way now what were you doing in August 1995.
1: Sarah, what was I doing? Um I was 17. I was uh-huh. uh yeah, I feel like I don't need to say anything else really. Um <laughs> was I going out? I don't know. I mean I'd, you know, I uh, for the for the area I was kind of a late starter in going out, you know, because I used to go out in Halifax. Um right. I used to go to a place called the Zoo Bar, which was well it was the Zoo Bar nice. and the tram shed. I don't know if I've. Um, you have to forgive me if I've if I've gone on about this before. But yes, it was this kind of no. uh, a club that will now live in infamy. It's now it's now like some offices or something because they they bulldozed yeah. it after there was a big raid on it and uh, they discovered that yeah the youngest person in there was like twelve that night. Fucking so I was hell. basically a, I was I was a kind of grizzled old person at this point. Granny B. Granny B. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was like a rock and indie club at one side. So you pay you three pound fifty at one uh, um one end of the building, and you get into the, the rock club, and there was like a sort of, um, there was like a beer garden, mm. and and like a, a room in between with no with no music on, and then there was the tram mm. shed. you go through a, another chill door. out
2: area, as the, a, the a, same a chill, an notice. area where
1: one might chill out. And um yeah. yeah, and then there was the tramshed, which was like the dance club. So you could and you could queue at either end and you pay the same amount and you get in, you get to both these clubs. And it was great. I don't know why more people don't do this. So you'd get this lovely mingling of, of the tribes, you know. And mm. I would I would go there and I would drink, you know, I'd have like three diamond whites and that would be that would be my night.
2: Oh and you're anyone's
1: <laughs> Excuse <laughs> me, I was extremely discerning for the first two diamond whites. Um <laughs> Yeah, so that's the
2: zoo bar though. That that throws up horrible images of people in bad '80s shit, just doing the same dance routine over and over and over.
1: <laughs> no, it wasn't like that at all. It was quite, you know, there were but there were sort of some uh, my mates were like the the, the sort of metal bands of, uh, of of like Bradford and stuff who were actually who were who were uh, nice gents, very shiny hair, and as uh, is always the way. And you know, my mates from like theatre school and stuff who I used to drag there, and. Um, yeah, I remember, I do remember that we used to play because it was like a slightly sunken dance floor. And whenever they played um, "Smells Like Teen Spirit," we'd do like it was like Nirvana chicken because you'd <laughs> you'd leg it across the dance floor just before just before it kicked in and everybody everybody started you know flinging themselves about like crazy and you you would you know be, be in personal danger. So yeah, good times.
2: Oh, what were you into at the time?
1: Um. This is the thing. Like, you need to understand that I was now, I could I could bullshit now about how you know about the things that I would that I was into, but I I kind of mm. wasn't because I I didn't feel cool enough for sort of um, uh, you know pulp and stuff. But I kind of si- I sidled up to Britpop a bit, and I sidled up to you know I sidled up to a lot of things. I didn't really have. Mm. This is why I like this. Um, this is why I like this club is because you could the, there were these two completely different cultures meeting in one place, and I could mm-hmm. sort of wear something that would enable me to pass between fluidly between these two places. And it was, uh, yeah, that was nice. great. But I no, I, I I did like a bit of pulp and I liked, um, you know, but I it took me a long time to realise that it was okay. Like somebody literally told me, it's okay. Because I was like, I'm actually not cool enough for this, this or this. And it's like, no, it's not really how it works. I was like, oh, great. No. Okay, <laughs> that's brilliant. So I was just coming out <laughs> of that kind of school thing and going into the sixth form and going, oh, actually, things are all right.
4: Simon. Well, we've done this before, haven't we? Uh, yeah, but we'll year? do it again. We'll do it again. Yeah. Um, I was come and sit by the fire, storyteller. <laughs> I was having a great time, really. Um, bet I you was. was working at Melody Maker, um, mm-hmm. as I had been for quite a few years by this point, and I was now uh, the reviews editor. Um, I was living in a basement flat in Holloway, Babylon, North London, Um, (laughs) and uh, playing football uh, every Sunday with Damon Albarn and co, which we'll come on to. I know we've mentioned Mm. that before as well. Um, This exact weekend, um, I and the rest of the Melody Maker crew would have been uh, recovering from a very full-on Reading Festival weekend. right? Um, And uh, I'll tell you another interesting thing that happened to me this month, just a couple of weeks before this. I discovered or was um shown really um a brand new music scene that was kicking off in Camden Town um uh, my involvement in which would become greatly mocked but I stand by it called <laughs> called Romo oh, and uh, yeah man.
2: how many episodes of this have we done before we've even said the word Romo I, well I've been uh, keeping my powder dry
4: my yes. my, uh, my, my my sparkly sh- shimmery eye powder um <laughs> yeah um what it was um basically camden town had been the hub of Britpop, pop but by 1995 there was an there were there were a few sort of younger people who'd been fans of that scene who were getting a bit tired of the kind of laddish nature of it and the mm. way it was you know the way it was becoming all kind of loaded and oasis and trainers and all that kind of stuff mm. um and um there was a bit of a return to the values of the new romantic movement of the early 80s yeah. so i i was um I was told about this, some said, Look, you've got to come along and, and see this. So I went along to the Laurel Tree in uh, Camden, which was previously the kind of mod central, you know, it's kind of where menswear used to hang around and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. there was a gig by two bands called Plastic Fantastic and Dex Dexter, who were all wearing kind of blouses with amazing asymmetric hair and playing music that sounded like Japan meets Roxy music. And uh, there, I, I looked around the crowd and, you know, th- these were people... They were way younger than me. I was about twenty-seven at the time. They were these people, more Sarah's age at the time, sort of seventeen-year-olds, um, dressed up to the nines and really rebelling against that kind of dressed-down orthodoxy of Britpop. And I thought, yeah, yeah. I'm having some of this. Yeah. Mm. So I got involved. It. I wrote. I wrote about it. I, I I dug into it. I found there were more bands of uh, Orlando and Hollywood and all these other bands um, on the scene. And I wrote it up for Melody Maker. The name Romo actually came to me via someone else there was a guy called martin kelly who was uh, one of the big wigs at heavenly records yeah um was walking down the street with his colleague robin turner a big mate of mine and uh, um they saw presumably a european tourist dressed in full neuromantic garb um you mm. know f- 15 years after the fact and martin turned to robin and said look at that romo there <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this was reported back to me and i thought yeah that'll do we'll have that and then then we kind of back announced it that it meant something that meant romantic modernist but that was oh bullshit. very yeah, good yeah yeah. yeah yeah um so yeah I, I got really involved I started doing club nights myself we we did a tour sponsored by Melody Maker of all these bands going around the UK and really it was it was meant to be a kind of a kamikaze attack against Britpop we, we knew we weren't going to take over the world we, we knew that people hadn't had their fill of Britpop yet they were still loving mm. it uh so the timing was completely wrong for the, for the next big thing. But then again, yeah. you you can't choose the timing. If there's a bunch no. of kids, there's a bunch of kids forming bands. You don't get to say, actually, guys, sorry, give it a year or so, will you? Um, so we we just had to go with it, roll with it as as as, as it were. Um, Taylor and I actually wrote um, a manifesto in Melody Maker, um, kind of yeah, p- putting forward the core principles of, of of what we saw this to be, called the Row Manifesto. Nice. Um, I think Taylor's bits were in italics and mine were in uh, normal uh, font. And uh, um, yeah, obviously the NME absolutely hated it and um, just ripped it to pieces. And we kind of, we wanted them to in a way. The whole point was to be provocative. And yeah, yeah, it it crashed and burned within 12 months. But we had a lot of fun and um, a few of the bands got record deals with nice big advances. They'll never have to pay back to this day. So uh, um,
2: everyone's a winner, baby. Yeah, I mean, you were. I mean, you are so tied in with Romo, aren't you, Simon? To, to the extent where a lot of people think that you pretty much started
4: it. Yeah, people think that I somehow magicked into being these bad things. You know, I had a gun to their heads. I just saw going up to random teenagers in Camden Town saying, "Form a band, you bastards!" Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's it's not really like that. I mean, what what journalists do is see something happening, and identify what it is, and apply a pattern to it or give it a name. Yeah. Um. And this this was definitely a happening thing. It wasn't just a disparate bunch of bands who had some similar ideas. There was definitely so you you know when you see it, this this kind of feeling that there's something's going on here. Um, mm. It turned out not to be anything very big. It was a you know a bunch of people who all lived in uh, various um, house shares and squats dotted around North London. Um, you know, trying almost almost willing themselves to change the world and, and to turn things back to how things were in, in 1980 or in the post-punk era. And I I became something of a kind of low-rent cross between Malcolm McLaren and Robert Elms as a kind of spokesperson for the whole thing. Um, but was yeah, it de- I, was it to the detriment of your career, Simon, being known as the Romo Man? I mean, who knows? I, I think I'd already burnt enough bridges and annoyed enough people <laughs> in various ways. Um, yeah, I, I, I suppose um, I could have played it safe and gone along with a kind of indie orthodoxy and it might have been better for my career. But then again, I, I look at what happened only a couple of years after Romo fizzled out. The whole electro clash thing came along and mm. suddenly, you know, kind of Hoxton hipsters and the NME um, and their equivalents in the States and in Berlin had decided that this whole aesthetic was indeed cool. It's just that we were slightly too early with it. So what can you yeah. do?
2: Uh, I've seen a clip of the Sunday show uh, in 1996 with Katie Puckwright yeah, about Romo. And it's it's terrible. I mean, not 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 the actual Romo stuff, but the reaction from the audience. It was like um, it was like that episode of Wogan where yeah. uh, Vivian Westwood comes out and brings out brings out all these models with weird shit on, yeah. and the, the just that the absolute derision. And it's, it's like, like, oh, oh fuck you know, is, it, no. yeah, is yeah. this who <laughs> we are now?
4: Yeah, and bless her, Katie was going out to bat for us because um she was uh, you know a total 80s head herself um she'd previously gone out with a member of classics nouveau believe it or not wow. um so yeah she she totally wished us well and you can see from the clip that a, a few kind of, uh, of of the old stars of that era turned up. mark Almond came along he was really lovely about it yeah. um tony hadley came along and was a prick about it but you know <laughs> fancy that yeah fancy that <laughs> Yeah, Tony Hadley um, had a go at us for um, digging up and revisiting the past. So, uh, what's, mm. what's, what's he been doing for the last couple of decades? Then, well, I yeah, yeah. Well, that's
1: what that's what therapists call projection, isn't it?
2: <laughs> so that was my nineteen ninety five. Into '96, anyhow. Nice. Well, I was uh, I was heavily involved in Brick Grot at the time. <laughs> I was still I was still working at Dickie Desmond's Wank Factory, but the the stakes were raised considerably because uh, well, one morning I was I was still doing my job of sifting through bin bags full of fannies, and uh, the deputy editor of uh, Pentas. Uh, put his head round the door, and he said, oh, by the way, we're starting up our own satellite TV station and we want you to be a presenter on it. I'm like, what? And he said, yeah, yeah, we're, we we want you to do a sports show called David Dickies Sports Night, and you, uh, you essentially wear a, a shit wig and moustache and you commentate on videotapes of topless boxing from Walthamstow British Legion and some catfighting videotapes we've got from trailer parks in Kentucky. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll do that. Why, why, why me? And he said, well, it's been noted that you spend all day going around the office taking the piss out of everything. So we thought we'd try and make use of it. So, yeah, I became uh, one of the faces of Television X, the fantasy channel. Does
4: any of this Which... survive on YouTube or anything? Yeah, that's
2: what I don't know. I've looked and thankfully, no. Oh. Oh. I, I had a videotape of some of the episodes on it and recently I was digging around thinking, oh, God, I've got I've got to fucking digitise this. And I found the tape and it was absolutely caked in mould. Oh. Quite apt, really. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> the really weird thing was for the first time i actually got to meet the, the models in the wank mags because everyone assumes that you know if you're working in porn you you're spending your day sitting in a jacuzzi with um <laughs> with all the topless lovelies but you you, you never see them hmm. you see the uh the, the wank mags and they're all edited by the porn stars uh but no that's not the case <laughs> one of the jobs when i was there was i had to pick up the phone for Pamita, who was the editor of asian babes and tell people who were ringing up that she wasn't around at the minute. Uh, She was out on a photo shoot, when in actual fact, Pamita was sat right next to me, and he was a bloke in his 50s in a cardigan doing the Daily Telegraph crossword, and just didn't want to talk to wankers. You've destroyed my entire belief system there. Yeah, I know, I'm sorry about that.
4: I actually wrote for Penthouse myself a little bit around this yes, time. Yes, you did. Yeah the, yeah, the
2: the later Penthouse.
4: Yeah, yeah, when it tried to go all trendy. Yeah,
2: yeah. I remember when that came out and I just thought, this ain't going to work, yeah. mate. Max, yeah, we yeah. did. There was an honest day. You know, it wasn't like, oh, you know, here's this great core review or here's this talk with an actor. It's like, look, you you know, we know you, you just want to have a wank. Here you go, knock your son out.
4: I agree with you, but I wasn't going to say no to the work. What happened of was you that um, someone I knew who was coming from the kind of... Fetishy scene, uh, that skin too kind of scene, yeah. um, took over as editor of, of the UK version of Penthouse Yeah, and um, tried to sort of take it back in that direction of having quality writing. Um, so they got me in to be the kind of music person, and yeah. all it meant was that for about three or four issues, i wrote about a load of romo bands in penthouse so so you had like orlando and minty and people like that in it so basically penthouse for about half a year became melody maker with tits wow
1: that's a real, that's a real palate cleanser in between in between wanks isn't it you know just kind of a lot of a lot of sort of fey boys with with insane hair staring out at you i'm sure yeah. there's there was a, a, a bit of a bit of uh a bit of dissonance going on in the in the brains of, of penthouse's readership there <laughs> Maybe they, I don't know, maybe Amazing, some of them, yeah. like, discovered, you know, new layers to their sexuality they never dreamed of, you know. Yeah. You would, you would yeah, hope. Yeah, yeah, I wrote for um, for about, I don't know, was it about 18 months I wrote for Club International? I had a column. Oh. oh so, yeah, now I'm...
2: Uh... I was nearly the deputy editor at Club International. Oh, really? Yeah, when I went for the job interview. They offered me the job and everything, and the person who was leaving, he was there in the interview, and I said to him, what's... He said, do you got any questions? And I said, yeah. And I looked him in the eye and said, what... What's the worst part of your job? And he looked, he looked back at me, and he said, "Well, Jenna Jameson rings you up about four o'clock in the morning for a chat. <laughs> says yes, well, that's yeah, the he, worst part. Yeah, she's yeah, she's a bit mental. <laughs> the all all the American ones are, and uh, yeah, she will just ring you up and you know, be your mate. Oh, it sounds all right, yeah."
4: So it turns out that all three of us have worked in the porn industry in some tangential way. We were young. See, there's an an idea for a chart music special.
1: (laughs) Shall I get, yeah, let's, um, I'll see if I've still got any of my uh, my old columns because it was a music column, but it was basically like, you know, um, it was like like the music sex column, you know, like what what is the best music when you're doing it and stuff. And it was just, it it was hilarious. I just took, well, I just, like you said, I just took the piss completely. It was great. I oh my know.
2: god, I definitely want to read that. Oh man, did you did you interview Mike Reed? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> not not that I remember.
2: But as I was saying, yeah, you actually got to, to work with the people who were in the magazines, which was which was a bit of a fucking mind blower. I mean you know, for the the first time I started doing any filming for them, they wanted me to do some sort of trailer stings and stuff like that. So I'm there in all my fucking gear. And they said, all right, we'll bring him in then. And it was um, Charmaine Sinclair and Sam Jessup, who at the time were like the two biggest page three girls. It was like, oh my God, I've seen your fan loads of times. (laughs) And it was like, okay, well, you lay down out and uh, they're going to kind of like roll on you. And they were in basques and stockings and everything. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is... uh, This is a bit better than going through the bin bags. But (laughs) later on, I discovered that one of them was actually having an affair with Robert De Niro at the time. Oh, my God. So this poor cow rolled out of Robert De Niro's bed, got on the DLR to cross harbour, and then spent her morning rolling about on me. (laughs) (laughs) And I I tell you what, Robbo, she loved every fucking minute of it. (laughs) (laughs) But it was odd. I mean, those, those, those women, you, you, you know, you, everyone's got their preconceptions about them. I've got to say, they were absolutely perfect girlfriend material, as mm. long as you didn't mind the fact that everybody else had seen them with the bits out. Yeah. They were such a fucking laugh, man. And they didn't give a fuck about anything.
4: Yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, there was one time I was working with, this, uh, with, with one of them and uh, we'd done some filming and I couldn't help but notice that she was kind of like scratching between her legs. Every now and again, I thought, "Oh fucking hell." So anyway, we're on a break, on a fag break in the dressing room, and we're having a chit chat. And she's, she's, you know, practically bollock naked, and she scratches again, and she catches me no- noticing it, and she just says, "Oh, I know what you're thinking." Uh, no, nothing like that at all. Uh, I did this photo shoot the other day, uh, and I, I, I was wearing fishnet knickers, and the photographer, um, oh, Gordon Rondell. He wanted me to take in the laundry, and, uh, w- which is a term for um, basically grabbing the, the front of your drawers and yanking them right up. And uh, <laughs> she said, yeah, I had to take in the laundry and I got a paper cut on my clit. <gasps> and I said, oh. And she said, no, 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 look. And she just basically just stood there and just, and just um, yeah, yeah, just basically showed me her, you know, clitoris. Wow. So, yeah, d- did not give a shit and and as well as and as well as commentating on the on the topless boxing and the cat fighting we also introduced new sports that were poised to sweep the nation uh which were things like uh we did grand prix which was basically uh <laughs> but with dildos on it and, uh, and the first thing i ever did was uh, a sport called muff puffing which was basically <laughs> b- blowing with a straw a rice crispy off someone's pubes into uh, into their belly button with a target Fuck painted sake. around it, God. and I'm not making this up. I did it first fucking time, oh, first drive. time. And then later on, when when uh, we did our launch, a press launch at BAFTA, they put that on the big screen at BAFTA in slow motion with triumphalist <laughs> music. Stand innovation. Is that your greatest sporting <laughs> achievement? Oh yeah. Well, well. Apart from apart from that, I also chipped a golf ball, uh, first time. Into a bucket that was strapped to a model's ass when she was on all fours.
4: Last time I saw you in person, what, what have um, you I, done? Well, I last time I saw you in person, I I tried to lob a beach ball into a into a plastic bucket, and if I'd yeah. known what yeah. I was up against, I wouldn't have even bothered.
2: I mean, mm. come on, <laughs> it was a good it was a good effort. Oh,
1: should we just? I think we should just fuck off the the, the music thing now. And just, yeah, yeah. You know, just talk about your kind of porn sports achievements. You know. <laughs>
2: But I mean, it, it was a it was a much reviled program because it was, you know, some poor sod spent ten quid or summer to have a late night wank, and then I'm popping up telling him what a fucking sad bastard he was.
1: Yeah, that's that's. Uh...
2: It was awful because you. I mean, one thing when you do work in porn, that yeah, I mean, no, no magazine industry hated its readership more wow. than the porn industry. We couldn't fucking stand them, man. I spent so and much saying time... saying
4: something, given you're talking to a pair of music yeah. journalists. Yeah.
2: I mean, I remember the first time I met uh, our readership, um, the, uh, the editor of Penthouse at the time would give uh, guided tours to readers and they were fucking horrible. Um, you could always tell when they were happening because there was a lot of women who worked, uh, you know, worked in the office and that. When there was a reader's day, you, you come into work in the morning, it's like, oh, there's no women about what's going on. They'd all gone shopping, or they'd all had a, thrown a sick air, or they were all outside smoking fags. Because you'd just be sitting there, working away. Then all of a sudden, you get like a dozen fucking... Horrible cunts, usually, almost always, dressed up in um, motorbike jackets, just leaning over you going, oh, you've got the best job ever, haven't you? Oh, oh, where's the girls then? And uh, I mean, there was one time when I I went into the, uh, went upstairs to the meeting room because I thought we had a meeting scheduled. And uh, it turned out that uh, the editor had taken people up there as part of the guided tour. And he brought along a couple of the, shall we say, fourth division models in uh, in some of the fourth division mags. And uh, they were essentially lying on the desk bollock naked and our lovely readers were eating sugar cubes out of their fannies. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And then right at the end of the tour, uh, they'd be given uh, a, a, essentially a trolley dash through the library to take back as many wank <laughs> mags as they could. And a supermarket sp- suite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's a call forward. And you'd just be there working and looking out the window on a Friday afternoon and you could see our lovely readers just walking to the DLR with fucking stacks of wank mags. Wow. There was one bloke, he actually bought about four big shopper bags which he filled with porn and he was just lumbering down the road as happy as a (laughs) pig in shit. It's like, yeah, there are readers. (laughs) The fucking letters we got.
1: Yeah, that's Ugh. another entire thing, isn't it? I may read
2: one out in a bit. I am in possession of the greatest wank mag letter ever. Ooh. So,
1: so we. <laughs> yeah,
2: but anyway, I mean, music-wise, Britpop. Yeah, really meant fuck all to me. I'd already decided I hated Blur. Okay, Oasis. I thought we're all right. Mm. I got really into dub at this time. Still into jungle. Still clinging on to hip hop, hoping it was gonna get better. Uh, I think my only concession to Britpop was having a Forest T-shirt in the Oasis font. (laughs) That's as far as I went. I mean, I was like, I was, what, 27? So I I did feel it it was a bit kid stuff, Britpop, Mm. which was a very snobby thing to say. But, you know, a lot of the stuff I'd heard, I thought, yeah, I've heard this before, man. I've heard heard the Lambrettas, thank you. (laughs) Don't need them again. Well, you know, I think by the point
4: we're at now in 1995, that assessment of it was entirely accurate. But I think it started off a lot better than that. I really do. Yeah.
2: Radio One News. In the news this week, jets from NATO countries continue to bomb Bosnian Serb targets near Sarajevo. Edward Shevardnadze, leader of Georgia, survives an assassination attempt in Tbilisi. Microsoft release Windows 95. Elizabeth Taylor is separated from her seventh husband, Larry Fortenske. Michael Barrymore has just come out, but the big news this week is that Nina Simone has been given a suspended sentence for shooting at teenagers outside her home in France for being noisy. On you, Nina. Don't fucking stand for that what shit. What a legend. On the cover of Enemy this week, Green Day. On the cover of Smash It's, Blur, The number one LP in the country is Said and Done by Boyzone. Over in America, the number one single is Kiss from a Rose by Seal. And the number one LP is Cracked Rear View by Hootie and the Blowfish. (laughs) So Simon, take us through the latest issue of Melody Maker for this week. So this
4: episode of Top of the Pops um, came out just after um, the Melody Maker um, reporting on that year's Reading festival came out. Um, right. So the front cover, it's a live photo of the Foo Fighters, Dave Grohl, at the Reading Festival. Um, strap line along right. the bottom, winner Gibson Les Paul, signed by Noel Gallagher. You lucky people. Yeah. Um, and much of the issues taken up with the Reading Festival. But the main news story is about the upcoming. War Child um, charity album for the Bosnia crisis. Um, right. Which features Blur and Oasis, The manix Charlatans, Radiohead, Porter's Head, all the heads, um, assorted <laughs> melody maker type bands. Um, also in the news that week, Dave Garn from Depeche Mode has gone missing following an apparent suicide attempt two weeks earlier.
2: Oh, shit And
4: now. Kim Shattuck from the Muffs, who ended up being in the Pixies, um, has been arrested on the Lollapalooza tour after throwing a television out of a hotel window. Well, that's original, isn't oh, it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> old school. Yeah. Um, Chumbawamba um, have pulled out of the Christianity based Greenbelt Festival after the organisers kicked off about the band inviting on stage the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, who are um, an order of <laughs> gay nuns dedicated the, to the pursuit of sexual pleasure. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Good oh, old Chumbawamba. And. Um, Bassist Annie Holland has left Elastica due to, in inverted commas, exhaustion. Um, Right. There's also the Rumour Mill gossip column that we had every week where we learned that Melty Maker's Everett True was kicked out of a Smashing Pumpkins gig at the request of the band. Um, Good Lord. uh, In terms of what Chart Music um, uh, contributors have written this week, I wrote a preview of the X-Files episode The Host, which is the one with that giant human tapeworm who lives in the sewers, um, or Pooh Man, as Gillian Anderson privately called it. Um, right. David Stubbs discovers a band called Towering Inferno, who are an ambitious attempt to make sense of Europe's history and com- commemorate the Holocaust. So, um, nice. typical uh, light-hearted Ooh. Stubbsy material there. Um, yeah,
2: something for the postman to yeah, whistle there.
4: Yeah. Uh, he also... Uh, writes a review of the Keanu reeves Sandra Bullock film Speed, which is out on video. Um, Neil Kulkarni has written a spectacularly venomous live review of Ash, um, in which he calls for an end to the lie of Indy. But he's also written rave reviews of an album by the New York hip-hop act Snow and AG. I'm guessing that's not Snow as in informer.
2: (laughs) Show and AG. No, Show and AG.
4: Really? Oh my God! In that case, Melody Maker <gasps> screws up. I swear.
2: Oh, oh. Not, yeah, not not the Informer,
4: not Informer. <laughs> no.
2: Oh man, a, a oh. licky boom boom down Melody Maker.
4: Absolutely, jeez. Showbiz and shameful. 18. That's a fucking brilliant album. Is it? I don't know. Digging it. in the crates. Oh, well, Neil loves it, and he also loved um, the new album by the jazz rap act Philadelphia Blunts. If you know that one.
2: Oh yes. Um,
4: Taylor Parks has written nothing in this issue, The Lazy Sod. Um, On the inside of the front page, advert-wise, there's a massive advert for Morrissey's Southport Grammar. And uh, further on in their magazine, there's an enterprising coach company are cashing in on the Blur versus Oasis hysteria by running trips to see Blur and Oasis in Paris in October Uh. and November, respectively. Wow. Single of the week is I'll Stick Around by the Foo Fighters, cover stars, uh, with mm. Goldie and Built to Spill in second and third place. Um, there's the satirical Talk, Talk, Talk section at the back, which is mainly written by David Stubbs, um, in which we have Blur and Oasis, battle to reach number one in America. Battle is on to see who can sell one copy of their single in the USA first. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. Uh, The Gig Guide guide tells us that you, Al, could have seen uh, Mm. Skin and Sugar Ray or Atomic Candy or Dissident Prophet and Guided by Voices in Nottingham that week, if that took your fancy. What a Uh,
2: shame. I was living in London at the time. Oh, well, in London,
4: uh, where I was as well, uh, take that were headlining Earl's Court, but nearly Uh. everyone else of any note was having a rest after Reading, including me. Um, Mm. Meanwhile, in the North, Sarah, Sarah, you could have gone to see Cast and Pure Essence in Leeds. Um, or yeah. Sugar Ray, supported by the then-unknown placebo. Uh, um, should you so of which to do? I don't know. There, there's um, there's a bill. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, the bulk of the issue is taken up with uh, reporting on the Reading Festival. Much of the coverage written by Stubbsy and Neil Kukani. Um David Stubbs holds his nose and writes vaguely positive things about menswear and jean because <laughs> Meldy Maker is sponsoring that stage. But he raves about um, Heather Nova and the Swedish band Whale um a bit more sincerely. Um mm. David also reviews the comedy stage where he likes Eddie Izzard, loves Jerry Sadowitz, but describes Frank Sidebottom as a complete twat. Oh Neil Kakarni, yeah. um still in the uh, um vitriolic mode, compares the dress sense of the crowd to Mr. Claypole from Rent a Ghost. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and uh, he describes the punk band Pennywise as horrible smelly music for horrible smelly people
1: uh, he, angry
4: he, angry young man yeah he is, he's much more impressed by Pavement and Buffalo Tom and Soundgarden but not the headliner who is in his words, some old gimmer called Neil Young um, <laughs> Neil Kulkarni that is, says I've pissed rusty water out of my arse that was better than this Oh, oh and man. Uh, we have a separate gossip column for Reading itself. Cynthia Plastercaster was hanging around backstage looking for rock star cox to mould. Oh, um dear. there was the traditional um one thirty AM fire alarm at the Ramada Hotel, which caused pissed up music biz types to hold an impromptu rave in the street around the flashing blue lights from the fire <laughs> engines. But <laughs> but had had David Stubbs out there waving his umbrella at them, shouting them to all go away. Um oh, David cr- Credited in the coverage um, is uh, as they also served are me, uh, Simon Price would have been coordinating the reviews, um, I suppose, and Taylor Room Service Parks. He's <laughs> called <laughs> freeloading
2: shamelessly, as I remember. Oh, I never knew there was so much in it, Simon. <laughs> how many people? How many people were involved in creating that issue of Melody Maker or an average issue of Melody Maker that you know of that era?
4: Oh, I mean, I'd say including the design department and kind of admin staff. Photographers, everyone. You're looking at 30 to 40 people, I would say, at at that point. Um, It was a a bustling, busy office, and we took probably half the staff down to Reading and booked out several rooms in the Ramada Hotel um, because Meldy Maker was kind of our Glastonbury. I think the NME actually had Glastonbury in some kind of sponsorship deal, so we had Reading and we really made a big deal of it. So I
2: pulled out all the stops. Right, and where are we going to start with this Britpop nonsense then? Well, just over a fortnight before this episode of Top of the Pops, BBC2 broadcast Britpop Now, a collection of live performances from bands who had basically been lumped under the Britpop banner. There was Blur, Elastica, The Boo Radleys, PJ Harvey, Menswear, Echo Belle, Gene, Supergrass, Sleeper, Marion, Powder and Pulp. Uh, Oasis were invited on, but they turned it down. So that left the field clear for Blur to be the headline act. And Damon Olburn actually finagled, if you will, his way into a presenting role. And his opening statement went like this. Three years ago, in the spring of 1992, Blur had embarked on their second tour of America. We'd been there the previous autumn and had been really well received, but this time it was very different. In short, Nirvana. Nirvana. Everywhere Nirvana. America had found a voice and a face capable of expressing its anxiety and self-loathing. An angelic face amongst the shopping malls. If America felt like this, then the whole world had to feel the same way. In short, if you were in a band that was not Nirvana or a diet Nirvana, you were nothing. Well, I think all that's changed now. British bands are no longer embarrassed to sing about where they come from. They found their voice. Panel, your thoughts.
4: Well, um, I'm probably going to go against the grain of the rest of you but i think he's got a point i really do um i think cultural imperialism had taken hold not just of the mainstream but of the alternative sector to a large extent i mean first of all you know in the post live aid era there was this huge kind of clamp down in british culture of you know anything non-conformist was um was was thrown out and uh, um, everything became very americanized it was basically one big john hughes movie um the toxic message of um, John Hughes' The Breakfast Club, of course, being that if you want to succeed, conform. <laughs> um, so um, the, basically, all, all the rhetoric um, of the left in the 80s about the 51st state of America being Britain, um, I, I believe, was basically valid. And now, um, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, alternative culture was becoming Americanized too at least a large chunk of it was. Um, I suppose you had things like Madchester and Acid House, which were um very British, but they weren't British in in terms of the kind of text or the references or, or en- anything that was that was going on lyrically. Um that scene was all about being inside your mind or being out of your mind. Um it was not really about describing um your life or the world around you. But that started to change in in the early 90s. There were bands, I think Saint Etienne would be the one I would credit as being first with this. Um, Even though a a lot of their their stuff was just kind of cryptic references and name drops and little samples of films and stuff, they were building a world that was recognisably British. And then you had, I I think the real breakthrough would have been Suede, um, who were uh, a classic rock band so they they had a certain kind of battering ram effect that saint etienne could never have, have have had um and they brought with them all these other bands who were quite disparate really in the early days of people like denim who were doing kind of bell records rack records glam rock pastiche uh you had the auteurs who were more kind of almost george harrison meets david bowie singer-songwriter stuff um and uh I think even in that lineup that that you just read out of, of Brit Pop now, there's quite a lot of, of diversity going on there, um, both in terms of, of music and, and and the gender makeup of those bands. It's not all lads, lads, lads at that point. And I think there was really something to be said for a kind of cultural fight back um at, at that time. Um it was overplayed in certain quarters. Select magazine um ran the infamous Yanks Go Home front cover with Brett Anderson. Uh, superimposed on the union jack which he had nothing to do with um and and of course uh looking at it through the, the lens of 2018 it all looks very brexit yes um, yeah yeah but it's it it seems so so much more innocent mm-hmm. then and so much more kind of optimistic yeah it, it really it really did seem that um as damon puts it you know British culture was was finding its
2: voice, and at least to begin with, I was all for it. Do you not think, though, that it was all Nirvana, 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 because they were Nirvana, and they were up against things like The Wonder Stuff and Ned's Atomic Dustbin? Oh,
4: well, Nirvana were obviously a great band, um, but... When he talks about Diet Nirvana there, I think he's bang on the money because there were so many ripoffs and they weren't all um, American ones. They they were, you know, a lot of, sort of British Nirvana ripoffs as well. Um, and yeah. I remember the man who
2: went on to do song two, which was <laughs> Nirvana Zero. Yeah,
4: well, there is a certain uh, poetic irony in what Blur later became. <laughs> Absolutely. Melody Maker was as guilty of this as anyone else. Um, uh, you know, we we had certain writers, um, Everett True being the main one, who spent most of the year going back and forth to Seattle and other um, American cities um, and bringing back, uh, you know, grungy bands who uh, he wanted to foist on our readers, um, sometimes with success, sometimes not. And it meant that within the paper, there were factions now, you know, that there was almost a war breaking out uh, inside Maker between people who really bought into this kind of very primal, very sort of gutsy, authentic, in inverted commas, American rock and people who wanted something um, a bit more arch and a bit more playful and maybe with a bit more life of the mind, um, which was the kind of early Britpop um, fraternity slash sorority. Yeah,
1: um, I, I kind of partly, I can completely see how that, you know, I, I totally see the, uh, the, the the, issue where it's like, well, suddenly there's, there's a band that has kind of swept all before it. And yeah, and then this is kind of ripple effect with, um, you know, it's... It's, uh, I mean, this this is a kind of standard pattern. It's like there's, there'll be one massive band, and then everybody who sounds a bit like that or, or who could bend a bit to sound a bit like that will get signed and snapped up. And then everything becomes sort of mm. homogenous, and it's this kind of diminishing returns thing. Yeah, of course, that's frustrating, but I think it's very, it's quite sort of glib to zero in on the kind of American cultural imperialism thing but you can't meet if you know I'm not saying that that isn't the thing but you can't really meet it with British parochialism it's just not really going to work it's like they're not Mm. being American at you they're not being angsty at you they're not (laughs) being Nirvana at you like they don't the the sorry you know the the sorry thing is that they you know the people who are into this you know uh, people in America kind of don't don't know that you exist, which is worse than not exactly. than not liking oh, yeah, yeah, you. It's I agree. worse than not liking yeah. you. So you make it into an argument. And you go, mm. yeah, this that you get this kind of David and Goliath kind of, you know, yeah. What do you th- what do you think of this? Then look what we're doing. We're fighting back, and they're like, oh, oh, oh cool. But we weren't actually we weren't fighting you. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, check this out. Yeah. And it just I find that a bit embarrassing. It's like you can just. This is a very. This is something that it's like it's not an attack. It's actually a retreat. It's a retreat into mm. this, which which there's this kind of british reflex which obviously we're seeing in evidence all around us at the moment um it's it just yeah. this kind of like yeah well well fuck you because we're this is what we do and it's like it's okay you can just do that without it having to be a battle but having said that like as as we see with you know the sort of blur and oasis kind of um concocted contrived bundle for number 1 it's like there is something You know, it's good to have something to push against. It's good, it's stimulating to have something to to kind of Mm. kick at. And, you know, in some ways it's quite infantile and regressive, but in other ways it's like, yeah, I completely understand. This is like, this has been, you know, there is a primal thing about that. It's like, this is our tribe and we are not like you.
2: Yeah, but up until the mid-90s, hasn't the history of popular music or or at least the good bits been like... Britain receiving influences from America, uh, taking the good shit, putting a twist on it, firing it back to America, and this pinging back and forth.
1: Yeah, that's always been a thing. There is a sort of cross pollination that happens. It's like, that's fine. It's like you can. Because I
2: don't recall. Pete Townsend saying, "Oh yeah, we're making our music because we've had enough of the Beach Boys and we're not having it."
1: Well, yeah, it's like something that is to be is to be embraced for the uh, God. Everything is Brexit now, isn't it? But you know, if you if that sort of um, that sort of cultural exchange and and kind of mm. co-mingling is always to the to the benefit of all, it's like you know you can't lock down your. You know, this is why the English language itself is so is so yeah. rich. It's because it's very porous and it has allowed. Um, you know, it's allowed everything else to kind of mm. dirty up the pond, you know, yeah. which all works out well in the end. Um, so, yeah, I did. I did wince a little bit at um, that. And it's partly it's partly because Damon at, um, introducing this uh, Britpop Now show is kind of sitting on a chair, all sort of squiffy and like leaning in this. that it's this sort of and just being, you know, peak <laughs> cocky Damon, you know. Yeah. I find it a bit embarrassing I think we're we're better than that just this sort of like um you find it a lot in in film where you see that in British film um where there's this terrible kind of self-consciousness mm. there's like a chemical reaction that happens in people when sort of patriotism gets hold of them in a particular way it's like if you the further the further out you have to reach from yourself to find pride like the more fragile that connection is between you and You know that your Mm. source of feeling good about yourself, and you get this kind of, and in that gap, you get this kind of desperation comes in, and like a certain aggression and a kind of self pity. So there's a lot of like stuff that you want to avoid if you want to if you want to make art. Like that's not art. That's just ego. That's like this is the stuff you need to get out of the way before before Mm. you come to the table or the recording studio or the film studio. So I think he's got a point, but also, oof.
4: Yeah, I I think one one thing that's interesting about Damon uh, presenting that Britpop Now show and doing his little speech there is that um, usually bands will always, in the fullness of time, deny being part of the thing that they were part of. Um, They will always say, oh, that was just a label that the press invented and and, and stuck upon Mm -hmm. us and and we, we never thought we were that. Well, let the record show that here yeah. we have Damon Albarn saying, yay, Britpop, you know, and, and presenting this show, yeah. and saying the word Britpop, Britpop, yeah. over and over. So, you know, he, he can't do that.
2: Can <laughs> he? And then performing Country house in a Deerstalker and Plus yes. Fours. <laughs> One of the textbook analyses of uh, of Britpop is our very own Taylor Parks and the piece he wrote on The Quietus. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, he makes the point that Britpop wasn't really a reaction to uh, Nirvana because everybody liked them. Uh, it was more reaction to the shit music that was yeah. being produced by indie bands in Britain in the early 90s. Yeah, fair point. The the, the juggler shit, as he called it.
4: Well, yeah, I think um, a British um, indie music, for want of a better word, had become um, quite lame and embarrassing. It was that whole kind of... Uh, Oh. <laughs> Sultan's a Ping, Frank and Walter's Time. Both those are Irish bands, by the way, so I'm kind of. Yeah. You know, all right, Thousand Yard Stare, then, you, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, mm. And it was all kind of very wacky, happy go lucky, NME friendly stuff. I had to get a little digging at the NME there. Um, yeah. it, it was all very what's on the end of the stick, Vic, you know. It was, um, mm. yeah, it, it was small minded, um, unambitious, and um, really uncool. Uh, we'd only yeah. just come out of that era of. Grebo with sort of stripey tights, Dr. Martins, and uh, long long yes. sleeve t-shirts underneath short sleeve t-shirts. That whole thing, um, it was a style mm. disaster. So if nothing else, Britpop was you know it it was one of those things that comes along every now and then to make everyone sharpen up a bit. And um, yeah. it, it came it came along again um, actually from America in the early noughties with um, the Strokes and the White Stripes and all of that stuff. That bands yeah. bands actually taking the trouble to look cool again. And, and it, that, that yes. goes in cycles. And I think um, in, in the early 90s, we were at the end of a horrible cycle of everyone dressing down. And that's why yeah. bands like Suede and Manic Street Preachers and Pulp and various others um, coming along mm. with an actual look, actually putting a bit of
2: thought into how to present themselves um, was really exciting. But there was, there, there was a, a, a collective will. Uh, amongst people of our age, for 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 it to be the sixties, and you can see that in Britpop. I think I
4: do think Britpop is the first youth culture in the UK that was almost entirely about looking back. Um, yeah, because even things like I suppose you had the, the Teddy Boys dressing in in inverted commas Edwardian fashion, but they yeah. were um, into what was then brand new, exciting rock and roll music. Uh, yeah, so and pretty much in, any. Um, any other movement that 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 took hold uh, before britpop was at least in some way about the future um even mm. with two tone which was about reviving sort of 60s Scar, it was the future in terms of um trying mm. to push towards a uh, a more racially integrated britain it was it was futuristic yeah. in terms of of the meaning of it uh, but but britpop was almost entirely nostalgic and um and I, I think that, that kind of set the tone for nearly everything that's come since. Uh so that that that's a kind of watershed moment in mm. in culture.
2: Let's talk about the actual music because uh our Taylor's quote in his article says, Looking back, Britpop is almost unique amongst these musical trends which lasted half a decade or more, in that you couldn't fill a nuggets type compilation with genuinely good tracks. Trying to find 20 memorable singles from 20 different Britpop bands, you'd end up on the very fringes of what anybody ever meant by Britpop. Get Yourself Together by Velocet? Possibly. CF came by Delicatessen? No, no, they were something else.
4: Yeah, well, I, I think in a way, because he set his own parameters there, um, he's he sort of, you know, answered his own question. Because as I say, in the early days, Britpop was very diverse. So um mm. some of those bands that he was talking about um although they they hadn't yet formed they had they come along in 92 they yeah they they would have been part of Britpop because mm. I I think all that was meant by it was anything that somehow uh in in even the vaguest way um has a connection to uh the immediate world around it, i.e., Britain, and uh, or just just the world at all, because you've got to bear in mind mm. that so much music, you know, the, the kind of shoegazing thing, was about obliterating um, the, the the self and and one's uh, kind of perception of the world entirely. Um, so mm. it was just British music that was alive to the world and to what was going on and that could have meant anything um yeah. you know you could you could put pulp next to oasis to pick two of the most massive bands and there's not a lot of similarity apart from singing no. in a northern accent but
2: nevertheless how british was brit pop though really well, i mean wasn't it just a london thing because practically every band involved in it was in london
4: yeah i mean it, it was it was quite london centric and it was quite you know kind of um Chaz and dave and kind of you know uh La- lazy lazy Sunday afternoon by by the small faces and all that kind of stuff you know and, mm. and the kinks and all yeah uh, I suppose but then eventually Oasis come along and they you know they, they, they stick a <laughs> massive they're the kind of Constantinople to uh, Camden's Rome there uh,
1: and Cast as well you can't forget can't forget about Cast
4: Cast from Liverpool yeah Pulp from Sheffield and all of that so
2: yeah, yeah. but they were all living in London at the time <laughs> weren't they
1: yeah. yeah that's the thing is that it was also um, uh, this has become a cliche to say it but it's literally true that it was easier to you know um, you could actually come and live in London and you could you know you could still squat or you could um, you know you could yeah, you could about, rent somewhere yeah. cheap and you could you know that wasn't going to actually kill you and you know so it was it was doable and you got paid enough money yeah. as well great days they were
2: yeah <laughs> we didn't know we were born yeah <laughs> So, what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One has kicked off with Over the Wall, the magazine show with Michelle Gayle as star guest, then X-Men, Play Day's the Happy Shopper Play School, then Zoo Watch with Emma Forbes and Rolf Harris, then the phone-in show Talk About with James Whale, then Going for a Song with Michael Parkinson, Leslie Ash and Tony Slattery, the One O'Clock News, Neighbours, a repeat of the drama series The Vet, Columbo, The Word Quiz Turnabout, The Animals of Farthing Wood, the interactive tech show Total Reality with virtual presenters Ice and Cube, then News Round Biker Grove, another episode of Neighbours, the 6 o'clock news and regional news in your area. BBC2 has the new adventures of Black Beauty, The Botsmaster, The Champions, The Man From U.N.C.L.E., Stingray, the Star Trek cartoon, the Australian film Stormboy, The Brollies, the Gene Kelly and Judy Garland musical Summer Stock and the quiz show Today's the Day. Adam Faith is interviewed in the chat show Esther, followed by The Oprah Winfrey Show, Rula Olenska walking about Colker Abbey in Derbyshire in Secret Gardens, and Buck Rogers in the 25th century, followed by a couple of Tex Avery cartoons. They've just started The Dead, a documentary film about the 3,500 people who died during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. ITV has run the news at one, followed by Home and Away, a repeat of Emmerdale, a country practice, a repeat of the documentary series The Other Peak Practice, where some bloke has a vasectomy. God, at that time of day, Jesus. Take the eye road, The Riddlers, <laughs> Wizardora, Old Bear Stories... Animaniacs, Garfield and Friends, the kids' drama series Just Us, Shortland Street, The News at 5.40, Home and Away Again and Regional News in Your Area. They've just started another episode of Emmerdale. And Channel 4 has put on the legend of White Fang, Sesame Street, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, the 1947 film Daisy Kenyon, the hospital soap Jimmys, Countdown, Ricky Lake, Home Improvement, a repeat of Roseanne, and has just started Channel 4 News. Sarah, you're 17, so you are spared my inquisition about what these kids' programmes were. (laughs) But yeah, old beer stories, that's... uh that's a bit, bit go-ahead for ITV in the mid-90s, isn't it? Well,
1: the thing is that every, uh, you know, having spent the first 20 minutes just, just sharing your porn anecdotes, you know, it's like everything yeah. just sounds... like it's like, Everything's tainted, is isn't it? Everything's porn now. I can't help it. <laughs> <so. laughs>
2: All right, then, pop-crazed youngsters, it's time to fanny about no further and get stuck into another episode of Top of the Pops. Don't forget, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on Top of the Pops more than we have.
0: Hi, I'm Michael Bolton, live and exclusive on Top of the Pops, tonight.
2: It's Thursday, August 31st, 1995 and we are immediately assailed by the terrifying sight of the bastard son of Doc Brown out of Back to the Future and a Womble who implores us not to turn over to Emmerdale Farm. Why? It's none other than Michael Bolton. Why do they do this? Because we saw it before with Celine Dion. It's like they've got some big American star right at the beginning saying, I'm going to be on in a bit. And, and they think that's going to sell the episode to us, exactly. Rather than, yeah, rather than just make your heart sing
4: and like, oh no. fucking hell, yeah. like you know, wonder if any any of my mates want to go to the pub or something rather yeah. than watch this shit. Yeah, this yeah. is
1: this is uh this is what is known in the trades a cold open, isn't it? Which I guess is something Oof. that they've kind of nabbed from um you know, from from sitcoms, I guess. Um or, mm. or maybe the news. It is almost like, you know, now this is the, the here is the here is the news of, of what is hot and happening this week in music, so you better pay attention. Yeah. Um but yeah But isn't that like isn't that like news at 10 starting with Saddam Hussein going,
2: Hi, I'm Saddam Hussein <laughs> <laughs> and you're gonna hear about me in this night's news at 10
1: It was a, a faintly alarming <laughs> sight because I like to watch the, you know I like to watch these episodes cold before the podcast and yeah. not um not look up what's on them before. So you do get this kind of, uh ah! you know, <laughs> this kind of slightly yeah. startling appearance yeah. of Michael yeah. Bolton. He's got a, quite a croaky sort of soft voice, actually. It's just, it just looks quite awkward. But he's got sort of, he's quite a large guy, actually. He's quite a sort of large rectangular. guy. he? has got like a, a sort of a cream suit on, like a sort of two shades of cream or, or possibly beige, you can't really tell, and and kind of yeah. pisshole shades and, uh, and, and this fluffy hair. He yeah. looks like some kind of yacht wizard. Just kind of like what?
2: Yeah, or the or, <laughs> or there's just been a nuclear explosion that he's just observed.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's looking a little bit, you know, he's looking a bit rattled and a little bit kind of out of place, you know. But even even mm. then, even in in sort of you know 1995, but there was this because uh, obviously you uh, Americans always have this slight slight tinge of exotic of the exotic about them, but you know for, for better yeah. or worse. And it is just like it's. I suppose it would be like if it's if uh, if. If, um, if all the pop stars were animals in a zoo, this would be like a... It's like, what what is that? I don't know. Is it some sort of primate? Yeah. I don't know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Top of the Pops is still persevering with its reinstated policy of having the odd guest presenter. This year has already seen Jack Dee, Eternal, Kylie Minogue, Gary Olsen, Keith Allen, Lenny Enre, Anton Deck, Phil Jupitus... Wigfield, Stuart Lee and Richard Herring, Michelle Gale, Craig McLaughlin and last week it was Jarvis Cocker. This week, your host. Born in Marylebone in 1955, Dale Winton was the son of a furniture salesman and the actress Cherie Winton. But the former died on the day of his bar mitzvah and the latter committed suicide when Winton was 21. He'd already started his career at the age of 17 as a club DJ in Richmond, Surrey. And after a spell as a timeshare salesman, he landed a job at United Biscuits Network, the in-house radio station for biscuit and cracker factories across the UK. In 1977, he moved to Radio Trent, Nottingham's commercial radio station, taking over the recently departed Kid Jensen's weekend slot before moving into the Simon Bates position in the week, where he became the de facto housewife's choice at the station for the next eight years at a time when 45% of the city would listen to Radio Trent. Fucking hell, the Simon Bates position, that's... ugh. (laughs) (laughs) After a contract dispute, he left Trent in 1985 and sued them for breach of contract, which led to him not being picked up by any other UK stations. So he ended up at Blue Danube Radio in Vienna before dropping the lawsuit and working at Chilton Radio in Dunstable and Beacon Radio in Wolverhampton. After resigning from Beacon and walking away from radio in the late 80s, he worked as a co-presenter on the BBC show Pet Watch, had a chat show on the Lifestyle channel and became a warm-up man on various TV shows before landing the presenter's gig on the British version of Supermarket Sweep in 1993. At this point, he's become one of the breakout stars of ITV Daytime and has just replaced Danny Baker as the host of the BBC game show Pets Win Prizes. This is his second go at Top of the Pops. He presented his first episode six weeks previous. What do we think of Mr. Winton? Um, I'm biased here, so I'll let you go first.
1: Um... I, by the end of it, I I was, uh, well, by the start of it, actually, I was just, because you just read out the roll call there and I was just like, oh, I imagine it was, you know, Wigfield or, or Craig McLaughlin or, or one of those. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I feel like on, in terms of, like, nothing against Dale Winton, he was a, a, he was a, a consummate pro, but he's he's mm. too, there's a weird dissonance putting him on top of the pops. It's like, there's a, a weirdly cynical thing about, or maybe I just feel weirdly cynical about it, but it's just like, there's a real kind of, he doesn't, it's, it I don't think it's a good fit I think he's because he's so he's so kind of waspish, and I know that's the idea. That is a thing with with top of the pop centers. Is there is this slight kind of, uh, you know, nudgy elbow, winky sort of like this is all a load of bollocks, isn't it? Attitude, but mm. somehow there's this uh, a slight. It's it's because I don't think he's I don't think his heart's in it really. I don't. It's this kind of, yeah. you know, uh, paycheck insincerity, which is over and above the usual standard of the usual kind of layer of insincerity that a top of the pops presenter should have. So Mm. yeah, he just looked a bit a little bit dead behind the eyes, a little bit like, I genuinely don't care about any of this shit at all. When can I go home? I don't know, maybe that was just my interpretation of it, but um I was starting to get slightly even like the worst stuff, even like Michael Bolton, by the end of it was starting to feel a bit defensive of, like, you leave that man alone, he's doing the best he can. You stop being so bloody bitchy. I disagree with you on
2: that. I mean, this is basically what Dale Winton would have wanted to do when he was a DJ at Radio Trent. This, do you think? Well, to my mind, Dale Winton is that he's part of that second generation of uh, radio DJs who can actually see a career path through this, and I think he's he's part of that second generation. Who says if I do this, I can be a television presenter. He was always seen as someone who had a very. He was very clear-minded about what he wanted to do, and uh, I actually interviewed him about five years ago, and I sort of called him out on this, and he said, "Yeah, you, you're dead right. That's exactly what I no. wanted to do: work at United Biscuits, and then get on um, BRMB, and then try and get on Radio One, and then become a television presenter." That path had been forged by people like Noel Edmonds and stuff. So, so definitely this. To, to Dale Winton, this would have been the absolute fucking pinnacle of the summit, presenting Top of the Pops. Really? And I feel he does it well. He he He's aware that he's not the main attraction. His introductions are very short indeed. He doesn't blather. He, he doesn't really try and get himself over. It's like, look, I know what you're here for. Here it is.
1: Yeah, fair point.
2: i got to say,
4: I, I agree with, with Sarah here in that... Um, well, first of all, I I don't like the fact that general TV celebrities were now presenting yeah, Top of the yeah, Pops. I, yeah. I didn't like that policy. That was the Rick Blacksill yes, era yeah. of Top of the Pops, wasn't it? That, that, that policy came no. in. I don't like that anyway. Um, and I know you shouldn't... It's, I know it's poor form to speak mm. ill of the recently dead and uh, loads of people uh, I've seen on my timeline mm. saying that he was a brilliant bloke and all that. But I just don't like his presence here. Um, he... It is interesting that you say that he used to be a timeshare yeah. salesman because he's there he's wearing a suit that looks makes him look like a timeshare yeah. salesman um with a tan like a junior monk house um and really he's just here to gleam and twinkle um right down to his gold microphone yes. and um I didn't feel that he either liked or hated the music or music yeah. in general I I think he's Completely oblivious to it, which does tie in with what you say about this just being um, another step on the ladder for him. Um, But um, I I think most of the viewers at the time would have come to this mainly knowing him from Supermarket Sweep. Because that would be the main crossover between Pop Craze Youngsters of 95 and uh, his career. Um, I had no idea that he had this whole backstory. The first I knew of him was Supermarket Sweep, which was basically, Supermarket Sweep was hangover TV for students and stoners and music journalists. Uh, Yeah, I know it was on during weekdays, but if you were a student or a music journalist, then, especially during Britpop, chances (laughs) are that Wednesday or Thursday was your big night out. Um, And it was a bit of kind of knowing, brightly coloured, American-style kitsch to have a laugh at um, in the, the mid-morning schedule. However, you know, um, once you get to a Thursday evening and top of the pops, was it a Thursday or a Friday at this? Still point? Still Thursday. Uh, still Thursday. Um, I, I think that that kind of knowing chuckle d- doesn't work so well, and and it it seems a bit um out of whack, a bit disrespectful mm. towards a, an art form which, much as we might um have a jolly old hungover laugh at supermarket sweep a lot of us took pop music really seriously we thought yeah. it was a serious business mm. that it's, it's you know a really really important art and and to kind of um implicitly relegate it to something it's basically by putting people like him on it it might as well be the lottery it's <laughs> yeah. you know you know what on the national lottery they get any old
1: so and so to just you know stand in and present it it's a bit like that yeah it's entertainment like any other kind of entertainment it's not it's kind of mm. taking that discreet yes quality away from it a little bit
4: totally but al right i'm surprised you have mentioned this unless you're saving it up what's that thing about when when the riots broke out in oh i've that.
2: already yeah i've already said this before haven't i well on the show i've yeah. already said it on the show yeah but yeah, oh, yeah I'll, okay. I'll say it again i was listening to radio trent uh, one morning in 1981 during the holidays and uh, the previous night there'd been uh, copycat riots in ice and green where i used to live and uh after the news uh, came on reporting it, first thing Dale Winton said was, "Oh, isn't it terrible about those riots? If you were there last night and involved in it, I hope you die." <gasps> <laughs> and I did. When I interviewed him, I did bring it bring it up, and he was he was yeah. mortified. Oh. Yeah. But I mean, the, the thing about Dale Winton was, for a lot of people, he would have been the first gay person you ever knew. Yeah, he was a definite yeah. housewife's favourite. Uh, yeah. And you know he, he kept himself to himself. Uh, he, he you did used to see him at Rock City though. I've got friends who said uh, they saw him introducing the Rock Steady Crew uh, at Rock City uh, back in Whoa. the early eighties. And he did a he, I believe he did a, a, a Saturday club at Rock City for kids. So he was very much out and about, um, and he did go to uh, he did go to a gay club in Nottingham called La Chic Part 2. And, uh, yeah, I've got a quote here from uh, from the magazine I used to edit uh, in an article about gay Nottingham written by my good friend Mike Atkinson. And uh, it says, Recognised in its day as possibly the best gay club outside London, La Chic Part 2 mixed old-school glamour with a new-school aesthetic in a way that was unique for its time. It was the first club in town to embrace beat mixing with an upfront policy that Graham Parker cited as a key influence. On a typical night, oh, this is genius, on a typical night, you might find Sue Pollard whooping it up on the floor to the latest American imports while Justin who silently prowled the cruising alley and a regal Noel Gordon, the crossroads matriarch herself, wafted around in a diaphanous evening gown blanked by stage door johnnies. In the upstairs bar, you could even avow yourself of the services of a resident chaplain, on hand to dispense spiritual advice to the morally bewildered, as well they might have been given the pitch black fuck room around the back. Oh, can you imagine such a thing? <laughs> the p- a pitch black fuck room? I, I can, actually. Yeah, with-, with Sue Pollard groping around, <laughs> just in Fashioner and Noel Gordon. Fucking hell, man. Nottingham, the centre of the universe, once
1: again.
4: See, doesn't this make Zoo in Halifax seem a bit small time now? I mean, I'm guessing Zoo in Halifax didn't have a pitch black fuck room. Uh,
1: no.
2: Yeah. I, and I, I bet never they didn't found have it. any fucking zoo animals either. <laughs> no. What a swiz. Oh. <laughs> so, other hosts this year included Joe Brand and Mark Lamar, Robbie Williams, mm. Suggs, Lee Evans, Louise Nerding, Ronan Keating, and Stephen Gateley. Halen Pace and Gary Glitter. Ooh. A a lot of those uh, a lot of those are, are definite BBC people, and I think that's why Del Winton's there as well, because he just started uh, Pets Win mm. Prizes, hadn't he? Yeah, and
4: I suppose it's the equivalent of how, you know, with Strictly these days, the BBC will always uh, turn one of their own into a slightly bigger star than they already are. It's usually somebody from breakfast gets gets roped in. So, so yeah, um, I, I suppose it's all part of the the, the whirl of being on the BBC. Books is that you end up doing this.
0: Hi, good evening. Welcome to the award-winning top of the box. The starters are Barry Sunshine after the rain.
2: in a blue suit and tie welcomes us to the award winning Top of the Pops and immediately introduces us to Sunshine After the Rain by Beret Born in York in 1974 as Rebecca Slate, Beret teamed up with New Atlantic, a rave duo from Southport who got to number 12 in March of 1992 with I Know, and released this cover of the 1968 Ellie Greenwich single, which was covered by Elkie Brooks and got to number 10 in October of 1977. The new Atlantic version got to number 26 in December of 1994, but for some reason it was re-released under her name, and it's the second highest new entry this week. Straight in at number 5. Well, dance music, this kind of dance music, it's been going for nearly 10 years now. Where where does it stand now in 1995?
1: Um... I think dance music is actually, it seems, I mean, this kind of thing seems sort of quite quite diluted and quite tame at this point. But this is the thing is that it was actually going um, fully mainstream at this point. Um, and, you know, you had a lot of this kind of thing in the charts. Um, there was also uh, stuff like uh, Don't You Want Me by Felix and uh dreamer by living joy and that sort of thing um and oh move your body as well what a tune mm. this was the year that um orbital played on the um pyramid stage at glastonbury just before mm. just before pulps uh big big thing which is it's quite an interesting moment that in uh you know um, yeah. both of those playing at the same time um so yeah this was when this is when you you really saw the kind of start of it being solidified as um you know it's part part of the furniture and mm. um you know kind of um and of course you know there was just you know the more you get of of a genre the more there's going to be kind of you know uh, kind of run off from from the original kind of burst of uh, of creativity but um this just kind of this this is kind of um in some ways it's like ground zero for um or like year zero for what dance music would would kind of go on to be which is you know just part part of um Part of the culture, yeah.
2: I mean, by this point, this kind of dance music, this definitely commercial strain of dance music, it's essentially look, just get to the good bit and just hammer it over and over and over again until the vinyl runs out.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is pop, and also it's it's this is it's very very pop as well. I mean, obviously, mm. that's this is quite sort of this is a very sort of cheeky frothy Ibiza cocktail kind of banger, you know, and yeah. uh, and it's great. And, yeah, we should mention actually that it's. it's um, it's just a shameless lift of uh, "I Feel Love" as well, yeah. Which, of uh, God, yeah. which is, which is, lovely. you know, that's a, it's almost a mash-up, actually, you know, um, mm. which is.
2: Uh, it's not so much mash as smash, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a bit more
2: of, instant and bland.
1: Yeah, there's kind of it's there's quite a bit of they've you've had to stretch it out quite a bit and put a tiny bit more water in than you probably should do, but um, mm. but it's not it's a I'll tell you what it's a good start to an episode of Top of the Pops because you do get Dale Winton, you know. Um, in, you know, looking very dapper and going, yeah, it's Top of the Pops, and here is a thing. And it's like, oh, yeah, that is that is a thing. And um, <laughs> it's not something that anyone's really going to remember, but I was like, oh, you know, that's that's actually given me um, given me the sort of pleasant lift that you want. Because it is kind of important what top, what an episode of Top of the Pops starts with. And this obviously is quite yes. a forgettable thing, but it's you yeah. can feel the atmosphere in there is actually quite, you know, this is like, oh, yeah, this is something I could dance to. It's a really good way to start. It's essentially
2: dance music for people who can't dance. Uh, Yeah. And it's it's basically a bit of biff-boff and fall to the floor and then for a decent amount of time you get to a bit where you can just stand there with your hands up in the air. Well, this is the thing like you that, were fronting up to people outside a football ground. This
1: is one of the this is one of the gifts of of uh, one of the many gifts of, uh, of acid house is that there was this. Um, uh, it's okay if you can't, you know, you don't have to be able yeah. to. If you can get up on a podium and and throw a load of amazing shapes, then amazing. But you don't have yeah. to be able to do that. You can just go and you know move about, and you will be part of it. You don't have to, um, you know. I kind of i i i'm totally um, yeah. You need you need the other thing as well, you need you need there to be um magnificent posers who who look who look mm. incredible wherever they go, but also you just need most of us. Most of us are never gonna yeah. be like that. And the so hood. this is the hood. There's just the kind of there's quite an egalitarian thing about it. Also, this is um uh so Berry herself is mm. is like this perfect um evocation of like the the mid-90s look. It's almost like this is the exact yes. point of the <laughs> mid-90s. She's got that particular shade <laughs> Of, I think she looks great. She's got a particular shade of like plum lipstick. I don't know what it would be called. It would be it would be Rimmel, wouldn't it? it would be Rimmel. And, Get the London look. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Get the London look. Um, <laughs> and she's got like a zebra print, a sort of thin zebra print dress. So not like an actual like a Mini baby dress, zebra, yeah. yeah. But and baby doll dress and a sort of floor length cream fake fur coat, and um, yeah. just looks like the most nineties woman ever. And her dancers <laughs> as well are. Uh, she's got like four four dancers in in baby doll dresses who I must say um, I always end up criticizing the dancers I know but um, and hey they can dance better than I can but the routine the choreography here is not great because they are no, kind it's of not, um, is it? they are they what they look like to me is like it, it's like when you're in a changing room and you're trying to look at your ass in the mirror to see what the back <laughs> that's basically the routine here
2: <laughs> yeah there's a, there's a very p- pajama party vibe going on here isn't there
1: yeah, but I like that. That's nice, and I do think it's it's this is probably a good thing, you know. For um, and you know, you can kind of credit the Spice Girls with this as well. Is that sort of, um, uh, you know, it kind of makes if you're if you're a, if you're a girl and you're insecure about yourself, it's good to see women. It's that achievable next door kind of thing, you know, yeah. where mm. it's like, oh yeah, I could probably pull that off myself, you know. And it, it just mm. gives you gives you a little bit of a boost instead of getting these kind of uh, extraordinary alien women who who you can never yeah. have to look like. Yeah.
2: Simon, was this sort of thing covered in Melody Maker at the time? Actually, yes.
4: Um, there was one uh, whole uh, edition of Melody Maker that we gave over to Euro Disco. Even though this is Brit Disco, it's not it's not Euro, but stuff mm. in this ballpark. Uh, Sarah mentioned brands like Living Joy and so on. Um, I actually initiated yeah. it that we had um, Two Unlimited on the front cover of Melody Maker, yeah. and we had interviews inside with Capella, Hadaway, dr alban i think and culture beat um
1: oh, wow. yeah yeah
4: um and uh this was all my idea um jonesy alan F- immediately flung into the corner of the student bed set <laughs> well <laughs> a- alan jones the editor um very kindly uh gave me free reign to just go and have have this just to do this one issue on this stuff because i thought it was a really interesting cultural phenomenon at that time um and i thought that we were a music paper not just an in- indie paper yeah. um we did lose, apparently, that week, about 4,000 readers off our normal sales figures. Ooh. But it picked up again the following week. And, you know, I think it's all yeah. right. We made our point. Um, I, I, I wanted to talk <laughs> about um, the captions at the start of this. And at the start of uh, yeah. at the start of every song in this episode, in fact. Um, so it's not just enough anymore to have the band's name. Factoid. You have to have a little fact. Uh, so on this one, it says... Uh, uh berry formerly called new atlantic uh like mm. she's a hotel on the seafront at blackpool um yes it, it was actually um, <laughs> uh, they, they got it slightly wrong because it was originally credited to new atlantic forward/ u4ea like euphoria for yes. the fuck, say um so that's these guys isn't
2: it it's uh um uh, yeah if you if you, if your band didn't have a name that sounded like a really poncy fucking um, license yeah. <laughs> plate. Then you weren't going anywhere in the early nineties. So it's these world. guys um,
4: yeah. Saunders and Lloyd, this duo, uh, and but there's no sign of them here, is it? They they basically cut her loose. She's there. She's buried. Like you know, yeah. th- there's no guys behind keyboards on this one. You know, um, accepting no. responsibility for it. They've they've sent her out into the world, and um, that with her mate. Yeah, well. I... <laughs> I, I I think they 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 kind of mugged her off here and and uh, they're, they're hiding mm. from it um, because they're too cool or something. Um, the song, mm. even though it's I know it's obviously it's a cover version, it's that you know Ellie Greenwich slash Elkie Brooks slash yeah. I Feel Love mashup, but um, it's kind of a throwback to that utopianism of early house that that whole Rosala thing, um, all that all that vague yeah. stuff about faith and freedom and sunshine, you know, for yeah. eat up drug zombies. Um, and I, I, yeah. I feel sorry for... Naked in the naked rain. Naked in the rain. A um, bit of a tune now, actually. Um, I oh, yes. I, there I, I feel sorry for uh, Barry, Re- uh, Rebecca Slate here because um, she looks pretty ace, I'll be honest. That that very 90s yes. look that Sarah talks about. The um, Zera dress and the long fur thing and the 60s hair. A couple of years after that, I had a girlfriend who dressed a bit like that. and I, I, I like that look. Uh, but mm. I, I feel sorry for her because she has the sad eyes of someone who's been kidnapped and made to do this, I think. (laughs) Um, Her her, her voice is all right. It's limited and plain. Um, She can't dance, um, so she has stupid dancers around her. Um, And she just isn't a natural pop star. It isn't like, you know, sometimes you'd have these records and it's so-and-so featuring someone else and the someone else would clearly be about to go on to be a huge star themselves. So, you know, for example... Mm. I don't know, the, the, the Beatmasters with Betty Boo, you could see that she was going to become a thing. Yeah. Or um, was it Cold Cut with Yaz and all that? You know, sometimes yeah. the, the featuring person is a ready-made pop star waiting to happen. Um, bless Barry, mm. it ain't going to happen because she just doesn't have that kind of charisma and um, the song doesn't have the kind of staying power as it? it's in one ear out the other. Well,
1: that, yeah. That's the thing, I think, with a lot of this music, though, is that there is almost, it's not very top of the pops. I mean, it's getting a... Uh, I don't know maybe it's evening out now, but it's not necessarily very top of the pops friendly and it is just like you know we've made we've cook we've we've cooked this up in a studio and now we've got to put together a, yeah. a performance and it's like well, that's not really you know it's like that's not the point of it, it's not what it's for like this isn't no. really this isn't really its natural environment no. so well this is yeah. it's essentially hit man and her, isn't it mm.
4: yeah and we're we're in that <laughs> era, aren't we where the granny claps and the whooping is louder than the record a, a lot of the time oh yes. Which
2: is very yeah, early. yeah. I mean, this is the same. I mean, you you weren't particularly using this term by the mid nineties, but this is this is Gary and Sharon mm. House.
1: <laughs>
2: you know, for, for people who. Uh, don't do drugs
1: yeah that's the thing isn't it because there was this kind of um uh filtering out after um you know after everything sort of died down from from acid house and the criminal justice act and everything of kind of mm. trying to uh sift out the music from from the from the drug culture basically and kind of going mm. well you know if you do get some of this is quite you do get this it's almost quite self-consciously kind of not drugs. You know, it's like, oh no, no, of course not, we don't we just it's good, clean fun kind of thing. Which, you know, yeah. I think it I think it does lose something. But then you always get the the kind of sneaky um you still, you know, it's still such a huge um part of it. And you'd always get um, you know, the whole culture would trade off that that foundation and that kind of the the kind of alchemy that that happened in kind of 88, 89. Um, while still going, yeah, but of course we don't actually do this. We're just kind of paying lip service to it. And it's like, yeah, but you can't. You kind of, um, you know, that entire thing was such a massive cultural explosion. You can't actually put that genie back in the bottle. I guess you can tell the people who were really immersed in it and the people who kind of came afterwards. But mm. um, although I have to say, it's um, I did read that uh, Born Slippy came out this year as well, uh, and um, yes, uh, and Underworld are you know a very um, to my mind are are an extremely an extremely e uh act and Karl Hyde is an extremely e man, but apparently he's never he's never had any. He's a he was a he was a boozer. Yeah. That's like but Frank Zappa like, you know, if
4: you see... Frank Zappa, the sort of ultimate psychedelic um, musician that never took drugs.
1: Wow. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is you don't it's like, oh you don't have to take the drug and you know, to to a degree, yes, this is stuff that already exists in in the human brain and in society and stuff. It's something you can tap into. It's just that um you know, it's it's a bit it's a bit weak when people kind of pretend that it, you can just lift that element out completely and everything will still be the same because it because it is because it's not.
4: I think it's quite mm. telling at the end that Dale Winton just goes fabulous uh, because there's oh, yeah. there's basically <laughs> nothing else to say about Perry. That's you know, it's you know, mm. she yeah. is um, a vacancy.
2: Yeah. So the following week, Sunshine After the Rain nudged up to number four, its highest position. The follow up, Shine Like a Star, got to number 20 in December of this year, and she was done as a chart act. And the last we know, she was working in a folk duo.
0: Bolton, Montel Jordan on satellite from the States. How would you believe Boy Zone in the studio and now here's De Lacey. I got a man who tries to run free, but that's
3: the way to make me run
0: away
2: After shilling the forthcoming attractions on this episode, Winton hands off to the next song Hide Away by De Lace. Formed in New Jersey by DeLacy Davis, a police officer and part-time percussionist, and his girlfriend Rainey Lassiter, DeLacy first came to prominence in the USA when Lasseter was assaulted in a nightclub by the New York Giants defensive back Adrian White and was arrested by Davis. This is their first showing on the UK charts, is the current number one in Italy, and it's a new entry this week at number nine. Well, me dears. We're being given a straight comparison between British and American dance music here, aren't we? Who wins? It's a nil-nil. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> yeah. On or the, Maybe one, one. Yeah. On the basis of these, I don't think either of them are, are kind of, um, very good examples of, of, uh, of, of, what they are. Um, no, yeah. there's the, the main, my, my main takeaway. I mean, she's, she's good. Actually. The, um, De Lacey, she's got, um, there's, there's obviously, the thing is you can tell nobody can hear themselves, you know, like mm. the monitors are for shit, obviously. Um, you know, She's got a good voice, she's got this good kind of diva voice and this incredibly assured kind of improvisation going on, but it's just not really much of a... It's not really a song, and it's not really... Um, it's like you don't need to... If you're making dance music, you don't need to have a tune necessarily, but also there's no. not the... There isn't anything underneath it either. And there's like... There's like the entire stage is crammed with percussion and percussion, is, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. yet, and yet, it's all so muted. It's like... It's like it's in the next room, and they're kind of giving it loads. And it's like, yeah, but I, I understand this is meant to be like this big kind of, you know, cacophony of beats. And it's like it's just not; it just doesn't get through at all.
4: Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I I like this kind of thing normally, but it just never takes off for me. No, um, she is obviously a big sort of lung busting, big brassy gospel singer. Um, you have got the blokes looking all action packed behind the bongos, even though presumably it's all electronic. Um, and you've got the lights strafing the crowd like it's a rave or like it's cold, it's doing an escape. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, 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 I feel I feel awful because even though I was just saying, I, I want to rep for this stuff because I did put uh, all this music in Melody Maker at a time when our readers were very resistant to it. Mm. This just isn't, as Sarah says, this isn't a good example of what it is. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> the fact on the caption for this one... From New York, yes. Yeah, yeah, wrong.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can I point out how bad the font is as well? What is that Ooh, font? Oh, I just, I was like, gosh, oh yeah. god, the aesthetics of this are just, are just gross. Like somebody just doesn't care at all. Like it, they're such yeah. kind of limp facts. It's like, where are they from? Oh, you know, <laughs>
2: it's just. I know what. Why isn't it? Why isn't it Bell Gothic Black? The the mid nineties font.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, um, but I mean, to this song, I mean, obviously because they're American, they've gone. Oh, we're a dance band. Uh so we've got we've got to put ourselves over big if we're going on top of the pops. And the and the overall effect is I can imagine uh, Berry Barry in the wings looking at DeLacy as if she's father Ted and DeLacy her father Dick Byrne in the Song for Europe competition. <laughs> and they they've come with a full fucking band.
4: Yeah, fair enough. But th- but um, then
2: again, then again DeLacy have gone, Oh shit, we've really got to put ourselves over and then they've seen Berry and gone, Oh fucking hell, we could have just done that. Yeah. I
4: mean, she's wearing mum slacks, the trousers yeah. she's wearing, which is quite a contrast with with, with Berry's very 90s girl look. Um, but I wanted to pick up on the lyrics to this song. There's um, a, a weird bit where it goes, um, my mistake was letting my par down, setting myself up for this runaround. Well, and there's, there's no, I've looked through it, there's no mention anywhere else about uh, how she's let down her par. It's mm. really, also, really
1: why Also, why would that lead to... I, I don't really answer Oh God, that's that's a lot of therapy there. I mean, I, there's yeah. a lot to unpack yeah. there. What does that mean? That's I don't I don't think I I don't think she actually let her par down, you know. And now she blames herself for every every no good man who comes her way. I don't think that's how it works. If,
2: if, if I had a daughter who was on top of the pops, I'd be well proud on her. Yeah, and I'd be like but, I'd be like Roy Keane's dad when he got uh, <laughs> when he got a sign from Man United, just going jumping up on a pub table and grabbing my bollocks and saying I you know, my bollocks are worth three and a half million pounds. <laughs>
4: yeah. The rest of the song's all about how, you know, I'm an independent woman. I don't need a yeah. no man to take care of me. It's all that kind of stuff. There were a um, lot of independent women knocking about in the middle. There are a lot of independent women. Couldn't move for them. Good for them.
1: Yeah, it's a real... Yeah. You can tell that she can do more with a voice than this, and it's like there's, there's yeah, yeah. nothing... There's no difference, really, between the chorus and the verse. It's all, like, very kind of one note and very... Yeah, so... Because I remember this, I remember this being something that I would turn off if I heard it on the radio just because I found it found it a bit irritating. It's got quite an irritating refrain.
4: Yeah, this was always on those compilations um which I used to grab whenever they turned up in the Mail to Maker office, like Now Dance Ninety Five and all that kind of stuff. or oh, yeah. Dance Mania ninety five and all of that. Mm. This was one of the tracks that would always be on there. Um and when and I'd I'd always skip it, to be mm. honest, but when when you look at the chart rundown that we're gonna see later on in mm. the show, there are half a dozen songs in that rundown, on which, if uh, she'd been allowed to, you know, uh, really uh, let go and, and have a go on those songs, she'd have been as good, if not better, than the people who did sing them. It's mm. just that this is a bit
2: nothingy. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we've immediately had two dance singles in uh, in the most Britpop month ever. <laughs> yes, we have.
4: Always oh, funny because, how that works out, isn't it? Yeah. Because pop isn't really like that, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Is it? We've we've had 1973 episodes that we expect to be full of glam rock and they're not. We've no. had 1976 that we expect to be full of punk and they're not, and so on. Yeah, it's always the way.
2: Definitely, yeah. Um, the audience—they're not feeling it as much as the Berry song, are they?
4: Wonder why? Yeah.
2: Yeah, and you, I mean, Maybe the they knacker thing... themselves out, you know. Yeah, whooping already. Well, yeah, well, I mean, and that's all we can go on—the the sounds they're making, because we, we we hardly ever see them, do we? In this, yeah, by I this suppose. Point, go on. No, Sorry, by on. by this point, uh, the top of the pop's audience is just the scenery. It's just a faceless mob.
4: Yeah, there's no longer people turning up wearing crazy outfits, hoping to get their face on the telly. Or if no. they are, they're going to be sorely disappointed. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I mean obviously objectively it's it's not it's not a great record but um it just occurred to me like how much this would upset Morrissey and I suddenly like it a little bit more. Yes.
4: <laughs> even Dale Winton, even Dale Winton gets in on the really worthless facts cuz he goes that is her third television appearance anywhere in the world. Like if it was
2: her first <laughs> maybe that would be something. But her third. <laughs> So the following week, Hideaway stayed at number nine before dropping down the charts. That's that, that's a pretty good run for uh, for dance singles of, uh, of the era, isn't it? No, that's not they bad. tended to stick around though, didn't they? You know, yeah.
4: In a way, this music is the true music of nineteen ninety-five. It's not Blur or Oasis. It's this stuff. It really is. Yes. For most people who weren't reading the music press at yeah. the time,
2: this was their life. Yeah, yeah. The follow-up, the look. Got to number 19 in August of 1996, and a remix called Hideaway 1998 would get to number 21 two years later.
0: Number 3 over here. he's number 1 in America, Michael Jackson. You're not alone. Day
3: gone. I'm still all alone. How
1: could this be? You're not here with me.
2: We've already covered Michael Jackson in Chart Music 14 when he just released Bad. Since then, he started calling himself the king of pop, released the autobiography Moonwalk, moved into the Neverland Ranch. Became the first ever Westerner to appear in a television advert in the Soviet Union. Renewed his deal with Sony for a record-breaking $65 million. Released the LP Dangerous. Told Bill Clinton to kick in more money for AIDS research at his inauguration. Became the first performer to draw a higher rating for the Super Bowl halftime show than the actual game itself. Founded the Heal the World charity. Was accused of kiddly fed by the dad of Jordan Chandler. Found out that he'd seconded out of court for $20 million dollars without his consent and got married to Elvis's daughter. Fucking hell, what have you done? <laughs> He's also had 13 top 10 hits since Bad, including a number one in November of 1991 with Black or White. This is the follow-up to Scream, the duet with his sister Janet, which got to number three in June of this year, and is the second release from his new LP, History. Past, present and future book one. The double CD release which is part greatest hits compilation, part new LP. This song has been written by Rapist. Oh, sorry, R. Kelly. (laughs) And it's one of the few ballads on a very mental album which included a list of every award Michael Jackson has won, written endorsements from Steven Spielberg and Elizabeth Taylor, photos of Jackson with a sort of presidents, a letter from a child asking Bill Clinton to end war, pollution, and reporters from bothering Michael Jackson, and was topped off with a cover featuring a statue of Jackson in the style of Heroes of the Battle of Stalingrad Memorial. And it's this week's highest new entry at number three. Oh, where to start with this? Oh, man, first of all, um, written by R. Kelly
4: and sung by Michael Jackson. What a perfect mm. storm of wrongness that is. Yeah, why isn't
2: Rolf Harris on the fucking wobble board?
4: (laughs) Um, That uh, statue you mentioned, by the way, um, do you remember it was sailed down the Thames on a barge? Yes. I didn't go along to see it. I was probably, you know, lying on the sofa watching Dale Winton on Supermarket Sweep. But um, I'd heard about it and I thought, wow, that sounds amazing. You know, more pop stars should do that sort of thing. And I imagined it'd be like the size of the Shard or something, which didn't exist yet. Um, And I saw it on the news and it was really little. It was like a bit of a sort of um, Spinal Tap Stonehenge situation Mm. in terms of your your expectations of it. But I actually quite like that idea of these pop stars. If if you're going to be a pop star be an insane megalomaniac pop star like, yes. like jacko was but by the same token you, you can see why um jarvis was prompted to go and waggle his ass at him at the brit awards not long after this mm. um because it, it is a bit much that you know letters from presidents and you know pictures with Elizabeth taylor whatever it was jeez it says on the caption um thirty seventh the top forty here what it ought to say is from planet monobenzone um, <laughs> because uh he looks like uh, a close encounter as alien um but with the hair of a boy and the face of a girl um I hope he paid them well for both <laughs> um, so um we we start off with with him walking past paparazzi cameras which was a kind of a running theme this has gone back to yeah. the video for um, Leave Me Alone where that was yes. also about you know the tabloid attention but then he kind of daydreams that he's in this Greek temple and yeah. and, and, and he's lying down showing his smooth hairless chest with his apparently zebra patterned privates covered only by a loincloth <laughs> um, with um, a woman tending to him slaking his thirst with an amphora of Jesus juice yeah um, his misses it's, it's, it's Lisa Marie yeah. Lisa Marie Presley um, and then he's singing on the stage of an empty ballroom, which is the—is it Pantage or Pantages? I never know. How you say that in LA. Mm. Um, and then he's in front of one of those fake waterfalls that looks like the, you know those those moving paintings you get in Indian restaurants. Yes, um, <laughs> it looks like one of those. Uh, or he's yeah. in the desert and, and all of that. Yeah, um, it's, it's, so- it's
2: very—it's very much like the uh, the uh, the video that uh, Chris Needham does at the end of uh, In Bed with Chris Needham, that, that looks <laughs> like it's cost ten pounds at the Trocadero. That's the amazing thing, isn't it? Because
4: the amount of money that must have been thrown at this yeah. at the time compared to how cheap it looks now. Yeah, surely. it's terrible, um, isn't it? I mean, if, if we've got to talk about the song, it's, it's, it's none of the things that I love about Michael Jackson. Gosh, he, he, does yeah. one, he does one kind of trademark hiccup thing. But other than that, it's like it's not him. Um, I, I mean, I suppose you can compare it to previous ballads like She's Out of My Life, but this is not in the same league. No. Well yeah, this is no. the
1: trouble. I think I said this last time we talked about Michael Jackson. It's like when your standards are that high, like, you know yeah. the thing is that even you know, even Michael Jackson on it on, on a bad day is better than your ass. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's mm-hmm. um yeah. but you know, I mean I was gonna say the thing is with this song, obviously it's not it is it is not his best work by by very, very long. It's not, you know, um it's it's yeah. nowhere near like his best ballad or anything like this. But I think you can you can tell it Regardless, I mean, I think most people would accept that he was now kind of in in his decline, you know. But um, yeah, you know, but still, you can um, you can always hear because it's all very, it's quite, it's quite low key. This it's quite pulled back, like you said. There's not there's not a whole lot going on. And now you say it was. Um, I, I've forgotten it was written by R. Kelly. It makes perfect sense now, actually, because it's sort of. It's kind of got a confidence about it, but it's very kind of. There's not a lot going on, but you can hear. there's yeah. this...
2: it, it's it's got the it's got the tang of I believe I can fly about it. Yeah, hasn't it? it does.
1: Um, I think it's better than that, but you know. But there's you can always tell with oh, yeah. with, with him. There's with with Michael Jackson. There's this kind of huge weight of uh, there's the power of that sheer talent. Just kind of you can. It's sort of there. You can just. It, he's not yeah. letting it. Mm. He's not letting it out on this. But you can just hear it. There's this kind of rumble of of that just being held back um yeah it just it bums me out to be honest it's like it's so, so I, it's like it's neat no next year it's gonna be 10 years since michael jackson died if you want to if you want to feel like yeah. yeah and
3: yeah.
1: um thanks yeah sorry about that um <laughs> yeah but you know we're here and he's not so you know it's, i think we got the, the better end of it uh, uh, sarah
2: the last time we discussed michael jackson it was 1988 and uh, you were you were particularly Jacko mad at the time, weren't you? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, very much.
2: Seven years down the line, you're 17 now. How how did you feel about how did you feel about him then?
1: Well, um, Dangerous was the the last album of his that I that I bought. So at this point, mm. I was kind of I I was, uh, you know, not quite so in it. I mean, I don't think I, I think most people wouldn't have been, unless you were like a really serious kind of diehard. You know, you were mm. kind of pulling back a little bit, but you know, he was still he was still completely. Completely, my dude. You know, and I, I, I really, yeah. I always had this weird feeling of like when I was a kid, and I, part of the thing is, you know, I sort of idolized him, but also I felt this kind of, I felt protective of him because you know, and you do in yeah. that sort of, you know, in that sort of immature way, and it's, it was, yeah, hmm. it's, it's an odd thing. How did you feel when
2: all this Jordan Chandler stuff came out? Because it would have, it would have ruined a, a lesser singer. I feel.
1: <sighs> um. Well, you know, I mean, it was just, it was, it was, uh, you know, he'd always, he'd always been in the news and it was usually in kind of, you know, in, in quite sort of negative terms, just like who, who the hell, what, what, there was always this double-edged thing of like, yeah, he's, he's like, you know, um, this incredible talent and a complete freak and we don't, you know, we're Mm. not sure how we feel about it and this was like a completely different, you know, different turn to that and it was like. I, I I don't know what to think really. It was just I don't think I had much of a perspective on it at the time. I didn't kind of no. I don't think that I was just like well this is obviously horse shit because you know I'm that's mm. that was my my loyalty. Um, but yeah. I still yeah it was yeah it was a, just a horrible thing and it was a. Yeah. Um, do you
2: think he got away with it? Just
1: seeing him going into court looking so kind of fragile and twig like you know it's like fucking hell. Do I, do I think what?
2: Do you think he got away with it?
1: Do I think he got away with it? Yeah. Why we do we have to talk about this?
2: Yeah, I think we do, you know, because when we do, we do play favourites. I mean, all the all the yew tree stuff. I remember one week it, at the same time, Jim Davidson was accused of something, and so was Rolf Harris. And my mindset was, well, Jim Davidson's a fucking horrible cunt, so obviously he did it. But oh no way did Rolf do that. <laughs> I mean, if if you want if you want to ask the question,
4: did he get away with it? My answer would be that none of us are in any position to know um yeah. we don't mm. we don't know all the, all the facts of the case, and I think there are two
2: yeah
4: there are two irreconcilable forces at play here, one of them is innocent till proven guilty, and the other yeah. one is the old no smoke without fire and all of that now yeah. whatever the truth is and i I repeat that i don't think any of us are in a position to Um, to to speak on that yeah just the whole thing Mm -hmm. doesn't look great does it well whatever whatever really happened there it's not a great look no okay
1: my right my conclusion and you know i i've i've turned this over a fair bit because i don't want to be one of those people who just goes yeah well of course not you know um but he was you know we have to say that he was you know legally he was acquitted wasn't he so you know i know there were two cases i can't remember exactly the details of each one i do know that what came out later about jordan chandler was that his um his father who was a dentist i think um mm. gave him uh sort of put him under like gave him some drugs and then like quizzed him about it so he tried to kind right. of extract what had happened which is you know yeah. so there's there's some there's the darkness kind of extends way out beyond you know and yeah. I, I do think anybody any any parents who were kind of letting their kids hang out with somebody um of of that you know on this level is kind of it's like that's that's quite that's quite odd but um, the thing, yeah, the the thing that I think, I mean, I I kind of, yeah, like we will never know. But mm. my perspective on it is that he, Michael Jackson was, um, I don't want to say that he was a special case and that he was so much different from anybody else, but he kind of was, and I think that he was, there was some arrested development going on there. I don't think, I think he was so, uh, he was so kind of brutalized by his, his father, who, by the yes. way, who died a couple of weeks ago, by then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I try not to I I it's very rare that I sort of celebrate when somebody dies But I was like fucking good. Good fucking riddance to that guy. What a loathsome mm. monster he was. Yeah. Um yeah. so yeah, I mean, he was so so kind of um so destroyed in some way by by his father that I think what happened, what came out of that is that the talent responded to that you know, to the the sort of the the punishment and whatever else. And that kind of bloomed in a particular way, in a very strange way, but in a very powerful way. And the the actual human was kind of crushed in a particular Mm. way. And I think he spent... This is what bums me out about watching this video, is it's like there's this, um, you know, when you look at Bowie kind of changing himself very fluidly and naturally and playing with it and then trying something else. And Michael Jackson kind of did that, but there's this desperation in it to try to find the self... Mm. You know, and he's like, this is one of the most famous human beings who's ever lived, and he doesn't have an anchor. He doesn't know, and there's so that's why he was so weird. I think is because, or why people saw him as so weird. I really hate the word weird, by the way, but I know that's what you have to say. Um, Mm. I think that he was, he was on some level, he didn't, he didn't mature, he didn't become an adult, and um, just something went really wrong and i don't think that he was i think he you know he was he was a real lost soul and i think he was a, you know an extremely unhappy person he tried to do good mm. things for other people i don't think that um i think that could mean that he was capable of you know of some really you know beyond inappropriate stuff just in the course of this kind of desperate scrabble for uh you know for for intimacy or for some sense of normality and just getting it so wrong and I can imagine mm. that people have been hurt by that um I can't say that's I don't think that makes him a predator you know you can't people will sort of mention him in the same breath as Jimmy Savile and it's like I don't think there's any comparison to be made there mm. really um but yeah just in this video and you see how how kind of how fragile he looks already you know and this is like you've yeah. still got you know it's still 14 years before before he's going to die but um and he's very, he's so, so pale. And, you know, obviously now we know that he had vitiligo. So a lot of that is makeup. Because, yeah. you know, once he, you know, when your skin kind of loses its pigment and you have to go one way or the other. So at this point he would have been, you know, there would have been more white than, than black. And, this, yeah. you know, and just this, And terrible. this is an actual
2: thing, isn't it? Because we had a conversation a while back about Michael Jackson. And I just offhandedly said, oh, yeah, but, you know, he had this mm. chinny wreck on. And uh, you 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 put me straight on it, Sarah.
1: Well, I, f- I feel like, you know, whatever else you're going to say about him and whatever we know and we don't know, what we do know now from the autopsy is that he did have vitiligo. And I remember yeah. him talking about that and going, look, I have a skin disorder and blah, blah, blah. And people going, Pff, yeah, bollocks. And I understand mm. why they would do that. But he also had, I mean, it, it you know... I think you can't diagnose people, but a fairly obvious case of, of body dysmorphia, which yes. you know, I mean, his dad used to call him big nose. Once his dad realised that yeah. he had that he was self conscious about his nose, he zeroed in on it, and it's like yeah. that's like you can see that in what eventually happened to Michael Jackson's nose is that he went right, I'm going to destroy this part of myself, you know, yeah. I'm going to make it as small and as, as as you know as Caucasian as I as I can. So yeah, it's just I can see all of that. There's like. You know, now we know that he was he was addicted to painkillers and just, yeah, it's, and he's trying that, he's trying to sort of play out like a normal relationship with, with the daughter of Elvis Presley and mm. sort of, it's, it's all, and it was never going to, you know, you can see now from the perspective, it was never going to end well and it just makes me, it just bums me the fuck out, to be honest. Mm. I think
2: one big factor in all this, particularly from a British perspective, is that uh, this, the first half of the nineties was the era of the big American trials where um where whoever's got the most money wins. Uh, you know, we'd had the Rodney King trial a few years ago, O. J. Simpson trials going on at the moment, and everyone just assumed, Oh, well, that lad's got loads of money all of a sudden, summer's gone off.
1: The accusations against Michael Jackson is a it's an entire rabbit hole. Yeah. Um The thing is that people still people still believe and always are going to believe what they want. This is how it's always been. Mm. Um, there was an extremely thorough investigation and, you know, he was exonerated, as we've said. Yeah. But the thing is that people people absolutely lapped it up and the media had a field day with yes, it, they obviously. Did. Um, I think it was kind of, um, people kind of felt that they had carte blanche now to all the kind of, he'd already been kind of a hate figure for quite a while, People could now kind of go, oh, I knew he was a wrong un, you know, and uh, well, and then go on to, you know, it leads very, very nicely from that. Oh, you know, um, he sounds like he's gay, or he sounds like a woman. He's obviously, he's obviously ashamed of being black, etc. He wants to be
2: left alone. Um,
1: so that was kind of, you know, that that kind of torrent of ugliness was in full flow. Mm. And um, I think there's there's kind of there are various lessons you can take from this, and one of them is something we should all have in our heads now anyway at, you know, at a time like this is to always kind of dig a bit deeper into things and not just settle on the first, um, the first bit of reporting that makes you feel comfortable and shores up what you already think. I mean, I've had to do that myself. I've kind of made myself keep an open mind on this and, um, it's kind of been quite instructive because, um, I didn't want to just kind of, you know, obviously I didn't want to believe this stuff, um, but I'd rather just. No, that's that doesn't really sit right with me it's like I'd rather know and of course as we've said I'm not going to know ever so I just have to live with mm. that um but it is it's important to dig more into stuff and you know even if it's going to challenge your assumptions and your prejudices just kind of you know it's a good kind of reflex to develop yeah. um and there really was a lot of bad and easily disprovable reporting on this mm.
3: um
1: for instance like there was there was no evidence of um child porn that was complete horseshit um but uh ultimately i do have to say like it's it's really important to remember that these were real people that we're um kind of almost um forgetting about in this um regardless of um whether it was uh the right verdict in the end um you know people had their lives ruined anyway and there are uh, human beings walking around now kind of carrying this burden having to having to deal with with all the fallout that they'll have to deal with for the rest of their lives um you know obviously it's always it's always important it's always vital to take any accusations of abuse seriously and sensitively and gravely mm. and yeah it's um it's just you know out of this whole ugly mess you have to remember that there were um you know some young people involved too um and it was uh, none of it was their fault
4: yeah I think there's um, there's a lot of truth in what Sarah's just said, a lot of truth, and um, I think, um, going back to question, did he get away with it, um, we can almost put to one side the question of what the it is that, that he's got away mm-hmm. with, because um, I don't think we'll ever fully know. However, um, if the question is really, did he get away with it in the court of public opinion, as they say, then in, in some ways... Yeah, I, th- I think so because um, his music is still loved. It's not like Gary Glitter where it's you know it's being yeah. completely written out of history. It um, mm-hmm. depends no. who you talk
1: to, though. Really? I mean, I. Sorry, I do think no. There's loads of people for whom that's you know, if you don't love the music, then yeah, that's who. That's
2: yeah. That's... If you if you go on YouTube any Michael Jackson song, it 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 gets mentioned in the okay, comments but very you early. You still
1: hear his music everywhere.
4: There hasn't been that kind of shutdown. Yes. Yeah. At yeah all. Yes. You do. I mean, I I still well. I still listen to Gary Glitter so maybe I'm the wrong person to ask but um, <laughs> yeah I mean his his music uh from his childhood um still brings me a lot of joy um I I play um the love you save by the Jackson 5 god several times a week and I also reach for things like mm. uh off the wall the song and uh, basically yeah. loads of stuff that that he did up until about 1983 um yeah. And I'm not being one of those snobs that says, Oh, you never did anything good after that because the single just before this, you mentioned Scream, I thought was a bit of a banger actually. That was a bit of a tune.
1: Oh, totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um
4: so I you know, I, I think he was a pop genius. He wasn't a genius in the same category as as Prince. It's a different type of genius, but nevertheless he he did he did yeah, have yeah. that. Um sadly by this point we're not really seeing an expression of that. What we are seeing is. Yeah, but
2: this is his his mawkish phase, isn't it? He's singing
4: You're Not Alone, but of course we're looking at it thinking, man, you are alone. Look at you. Yeah, you are the loneliest man in the world. Um,
1: Oh, God. Oh, man, it breaks my heart. And uh,
4: then in in the outro, Dale Winton um, referring to Jacko's skin color as much as anything, I guess, saying, interesting image, Michael. And I'm thinking, pot kettle, mate. Pot
2: kettle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's a good fucking point.
2: Did you have the album,
1: Sarah? I didn't have this one. No, no. Um I really, um, I don't know if Stranger in Moscow came out before or after this. But Moscow. What a, that was a, Moscow. That was a, As he sings, it. Moscow. <laughs> it, that's a, that's you know that's it's how Americans American say, isn't it? You know, they also he would have said he probably would have said Leicester Square yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I thought that was a that was a gobsmacking single. It's a lot better than this one. Um, mm. And, you know, there's this kind of, uh, yeah. So I I still, you know, I, I was still a fan kind of to to a degree. Because this, song, was, this
2: song's extremely out of kilter with the rest of the album, isn't it? It's a very angry album, isn't oh, it? Oh,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. You know, he's, um, he's
2: just basically telling everyone to fuck off and leave him alone. <laughs> and then here he is saying, oh, you're not alone. Huh. And of course, if you want a barometer on Michael Jackson standing in the UK... This is a song that they whack the first part of the charts over as if they don't mean <laughs> yeah. shit.
1: It's really distracting.
2: Pretty much the only video on the on, on as well, so it is distracting. Yeah,
1: it really um kind of made me miss uh, the breakers. Like I think the format at this point is is uh, they're obviously trying yeah. to uh, kind of keep it clean and tight and whatever. But it's like, um, yeah, don't don't kind of run. It's It seems a bit disrespectful, really. It's like in the ways that they used to just show, you know, it's like if you're going to show a snippet, then show a snippet, but don't show like a whole video and like a sort of running ticker of other stuff under it. It's just like, well, I'm, you know, yeah. one, one thing at a time, mate, you know.
4: Yeah. yeah. One thing I noticed about it was um, this kind of war going on between Britpop and Eurodance, which uh, b- between the two of mm. them account for more than half of the stuff. So on the one hand, you've got charlatans and Supergrass um and... Yep. I guess, uh, older figures like Morrissey um, and... uh, Yeah, Dagenham uh, Dave. And Radiohead, not exactly Britpop, but an indie band. And then there's Mm. um, a definite Britpop band, so I won't spoiler uh, in there because we're coming to them. And then you've got all the stuff like, uh, well, you've got Out Here Brothers, you've got The Real McCoy, uh, you've got Deuce, you've got JX, Corona, all this kind of stuff. So, um, like, like I say, that... That Top 40 Rundown really brought home to me that this was the time of Eurodance. It was so dominant at this point.
2: So the following week, you were not alone, got to number one and stayed there for two weeks before being usurped by Bombastic by (laughs) Shaggy. Also that week... It became the first ever single to go straight in at number one in America. Can you believe
4: that? Yeah, that's a weird thing about the American charts, isn't it? Things move a lot more slowly.
2: Yeah. than they did in that
4: in that era. The follow-up yeah.
2: "Earth" song went straight to number one in December of this year and stayed there for five weeks. However, in two thousand and seven. A court in Belgium ruled that You Are Not Alone was a direct nick of the nineteen ninety-three tune If We Can Start All Over by songwriters Eddie and Danny Van Passel, meaning that this song is now banned on Belgian TV and radio. <laughs>
3: uh,
2: genius Steals. They've struggled on without it, the Belgians. That would have been a great Michael Jackson LP cover, wasn't it? Banned in Belgium. <laughs> <laughs>
0: They're here on Top of the Pops. Please welcome the Rembrandts.
2: (laughs) Formed in Los Angeles in 1989, the Rembrandts were a duo, Danny Wilde and Phil Solom, who were previously in the power pop band's Great Buildings and The Quick. Their first single, Just the Way It Is Baby was a top 20 hit in the USA in 1990 but they never troubled the UK charts until this year when they were invited to perform a theme tune for the sitcom Friends in 1994 which was then re-recorded and extended into a single. It's another new entry this week at number 6. Let's get the Friends stuff out of the way. You, Well, I, I can't really lead with this because I never watched the fucking thing. I took an instant dislike to it without ever actually yeah, watching I it. Yeah, I liked it. I've got to say, um, I will front yes, up for this. Yes, yeah, you, you, you confessed earlier. Yeah, uh,
4: I, know, I know Neil Kulkarni absolutely hated it. I remember him having the right goers. <laughs> Good lad.
2: Um, <laughs> Good lad. I've only seen one episode in full of Friends when I was at a mate's house and I was off my tits on speed. And I started hallucinating that the casts were cardboard cutouts and they were being moved in and out of shot on sticks. So, yeah, not not the best judge. But to me, Friends is where Channel 4 started going down the toilet.
1: Oh, Speed, speed is the worst drug. That's where your speed should start going down the toilet, actually, when that happens. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's a perfect. No, it, it's a near perfect sitcom, and it gets a lot of it gets a lot of like partly because it's so massive, and people think it oh, it's cheesy and it's anodyne and stuff. And it's like, well, it's not. It is not quite perfect, but it's it's a beautifully engineered bit of telly. Everybody in it mm. is a, an incredible comic actor with amazing timing, and it's just yeah, it's a joy. Yeah. I'll still watch it now. I mean, and you know, it's it, it's twenty years old now some of it doesn't hold up so well. Some of it you go oh Christ you can't no d- don't don't do that. That's that's not what you should be doing. But mm. it's no
2: it... well no, nothing that belongs to me holds up after 20 years anyway. <laughs> yeah, tell so. us about it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but <laughs> um, but yeah, but the thing about um, about the the theme tune uh, which is what this is. Um it's mm. it works but it it's it's not a, it's not a very good song but it's a really good sitcom theme tune. It's basically I realize it's happy days isn't it? It's Uh, like a sort of self-conscious throwback to that and I think somebody, some people there knew exactly what they were doing
4: Uh, Good comparison, yeah It's got
1: that slightly, that thing you do you know, it's that kind of throwback-y sort of thing Um, and with a slightly it's very jolly, it's like an irritatingly kind of American, bland and jolly and it but with a little wistful, little wistful bend in the, you know, in the ooh, that bit it's a little tiny yeah. bit of a, a a pang that you get there so you know that this well, is it's a
2: pavlov's dog thing isn't it that op- the opening bit yeah yeah you know with, it's, with the handcuffs. if you like french it's clap, just clap, like clap the uh, the pavlov's dog yeah. thing for half but, an hour of um sitting down watching American twats being sassy. <laughs> uh, the cla- I mean, the, the thing I didn't like about Friends... Sarah, if I'd have been your age, I would have been more open to Friends, but I'd already lived with other people, so I knew that Friends was a fucking lie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all- Nobody gets on like that. But that's it. It was, it was aspirational, you see. This is the thing. And, and- oh, totally, yeah. No one shares a house that big. And... The thing that really fucked me off, there, there was no one in Friends in that house who you'd only see every now and again padding from their bedroom to the kitchen, <laughs> dressing <Yeah>. gown. <laughs> but hold on. Looking they,
4: really yeah. fucked off. I've got to correct you, Al. They didn't all live in the same house. Some of them lived in different apartments and stuff, and they just drop in. Um, so, oh. yeah, I mean, come on. Get your facts right, Needham.
1: <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, there were two. There were two apartments, and and they would sort of swap between. One of them was the, was the massive, outrageously good one, and then another one was a bit a bit crappier. But still, it's you know. And, and Phoebe lived somewhere
4: else entirely, so she would drop in. Phoebe
1: lived somewhere else entirely, in, yeah, in yeah. some sort of well. The great thing about Phoebe is that she was this sort of you know uh, dippy sort of Daffy character who also turned out as as it went along. It turned out that she was a complete freak, mm-hmm. like she was this kind of sex fiend. Who would kind of, um, who was very, very sweet and blonde and lovely, but just absolutely you would not tangle with her. Or, or I think, and also she's. Yeah, and she used to live on the streets and was, like, really really handy and stuff, you know. So, like, it's, so there was, you know, kind of more to it than than you would get from, like, a single viewing when you were off your tits on Billy Whiz. Um, <laughs> I mean, first of all, it was it was created yeah. in an
4: entirely different way to the kind of classic British sitcoms, which were usually written by a duo, weren't they? It's, you know, mm. Galton and Simpson or whoever, or mm. uh, Clement and Lafrenet, you know, those kind of teams making British sitcoms. This was really kind of... Uh, workshopped. It was almost like the right, writers' room, isn't it? Yeah, writers' yeah. room. It's almost like the sort of Motown of sitcoms in that they they were churned you out quite compare methodically. Friends, yes, to I Motown. Am. <laughs> Yeah, you For can
3: do it, sake. do it, do it.
2: Oh man, you really hate us right now, don't you? Uh, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, sorry, to me, but I'm not sorry. Friends was the soundtrack to me getting off the sofa and leaving my girlfriend to it and (laughs) playing demolition derby on the playstation in the spare bedroom i think i wanted like no this is your time you can have it i'm fucking off i wanted
4: that to be my life um i wanted my friends to be as funny as them um i think my friends were actually funnier (laughs) in a lot of cases but um yeah okay
2: imagine taylor being in friends Oh Jesus!
4: Yeah, that, well, he, he'd be one. He'd be like one, you know, sort of miserable guy who, who turns up every six or seven episodes, and you know, yeah. says, says a couple of funny things, and then yeah, get, off gets again.
2: gales of applause when he walks <laughs> yeah, through yeah, the door.
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, cer- certainly but, um, with his
2: catchphrase, "Fucking BA Robertson." <laughs> <laughs> no, I
4: mean Taylor's already been in a sitcom. It's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, he's uh, Marvin the Paranoid Android. Uh, Oh, I'm not having this. I'm life. no. We love Don't you, Taylor. Don't talk to me about like No, of course we all love Taylor, but I'm just saying cuz <laughs> cuz what what Friends did very cleverly was create these different personality types that it was all set up so you could say, "Oh, I'm that one and my friend is that other one and um, you know, mm. uh, that that's kind of how how it, mm. it latched on with, you know, how, how people but, caught on to it.
1: But there was development along the way as well, but it's it's really funny when you revisit it now and um occasionally on Twitter somebody'll go oh my God, Ross Geller was actually a psychopath. And it's like, yeah, yeah, he was, yeah. yeah. He's this raving narcissist. I'm just going
2: to sit out of this conversation now. <laughs>
1: no. Well, let's talk, well, you know.
4: Proven let's, um, completely wrong. The pot youngst- craze youngsters will understand so let's get on with it
3: <laughs> yeah yeah
4: there were two massive sitcoms on Channel 4 around this time it was this and Frasier and I loved them both yeah. but I think Frasier has has kind of it, it's become the one that it's, it's still okay to say you're into that because it was a bit more yeah. refined and intellectual whereas Friends was kind of pure feel good really although it did I think it was quite um, groundbreaking in, in sitcom terms in that there was a, there was real kind of emotional poignancy to it and that, that yeah. the, the real weepy thing the whole will they won't they thing with Ross and rachel and various other um developments um uh, from that so um that 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 gave it a kind of hook it, you know it got under your skin so that you would want to come back every week uh it wasn't it wasn't a sort of take it or leave it you know i'll watch it and have a laugh or maybe i'll skip this week so you, you really wanted to find out what was going to happen so that was very clever but-
1: but now you can you can actually watch any episode now. I suppose it's different when you've seen each one like many many times. But you can watch any of them, and they do all kind of stand alone. I mean, obviously, it took a while to get going, like a lot of things do. Um, you know, it's the first series a little bit wobbly, but um, after that, it's just it's pretty much it's really solid until it's kind of like there. There are only a few um, kind of long running shows that have that kind of purple period. For you know, obviously, The Simpsons is one well, that had like a purple period of like ten years, and Friends I think mm. is is. About that, it's like it was solidly brilliant for like eight years. How long did um, you, st- yeah?
4: Because I, I stuck with it till about series six, I think. And then I saw. Still- I think when, um, that oh, who's the English actress that came in and got married to Ross? And
1: she oh, just- god, a fucking Helen, Helen Baxendale, Emily, oh, Emily,
4: god, she was terrible.
1: Emily. Oh, god, I hated her, yeah. That was, yeah, so yeah I sorry, I but, but yeah, yeah I did, from,
4: yeah, I ducked well, her. The out of that
1: horrible point. kind of, well, the character was horrible as that sort of you know frosty english bitch which yeah. you know yeah. I, I just didn't you know I've, i felt personally attacked yeah but, um, you know. i might i might just check it out
2: actually in a fucking pig's ass will i <laughs> Fuck <it>. Fuck friends. <laughs> but we we have to we have to have this conversation about the tv show because if it wasn't for the tv show this wouldn't be on top of the pops would it because well, the actual song's a bit of a it's a bit of a Bangles B side, isn't it?
4: They they're so uncool, by the way, that with their with their nicely blow dried hair, they, they look like they haven't got yeah, the memo yeah. that it's the nineties yet. Yeah. Uh, and they're supposed to be British.
2: Totally. Yeah.
4: They're and,
1: completely sort of out out of time, aren't they?
2: Yeah, Damon Albarn would be well pissed off about this. <laughs> Why isn't it meet the gang cause the boys are here? Yeah. They they they're like that band Deep Blue
4: Something. You know, Deeply Something who sang Breakfast at Tiffany's <laughs> uh, oh, uh, yeah, is in a
2: similar vein to that just so. Very much so. Yeah. Oh, they, God, they do I this, hate that song so much. Uh, they, um, I, I thought when that song came out, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and I thought, well, what TV <laughs> show <laughs> is this then?
4: <laughs> exactly. It <got laughs> sounded spring.
2: exactly like a, a sitcom theme yeah, tune. Yeah, yeah, um, they, yeah, yeah.
4: They yeah. do yeah. a bit of that Libertine's face-to-face thing at the end, which kind of doesn't really come off. And They're just being there for each other, though, Simon. Two songs in a row we've had. we've had They'll Be There For You. You are not alone. I yeah. fucking leave me alone, pop stars. I want to be alone. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, the I did kind of um, you know thinking about because I've I've heard this obviously so many times that I kind of can't hear it anymore. Yeah. Um, so and and just looking at you know I I appreciate there's a little little bit of stagecraft going on there. It's like yeah you know good well done for you know trying to distinguish yourselves a little bit. But I I started to think like oh god I wonder. Um, I wonder how much well A how much they've made from this and B how much they hate it because I like, I imma- yeah. this is like the curse of the one hit wonder I don't know how 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 well yeah. they did like in America or whatever what kind of careers they've had but like imagine if you're so uh deeply associated with the, like one thing that you've done and it's mm. not even really about you you've you've just yeah. you've made a theme tune maybe these guys thought that this song would kind of be a, a, like a pop classic in its own right. That's what you would hope for. That's probably what they were going for. And then it's like, well, it's great because it, it's so deeply associated with this thing that people love. And it's like, yeah, but nobody remembers you and nobody knows, like you wouldn't recognise no. any of the Rembrandts if they were on, you know, Nevermind the Buzzcocks or something. Yeah, um, yeah, and they they, so-
4: they they came over and played gigs at like Shepherds Bush Empire. And imagine what that gig must have been like. So let's yeah. say they've got like a dozen or so songs of their own uh you know that the, um, the, they're really proud of, and they play the entire gig. And there's two thousand people just waiting for the bit at the end where they can go, <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> do
1: friends,
2: yeah, so do friends again, yeah, do the
1: friend, do the yeah. friends bit, <laughs> yeah. They probably did. They probably had to play it twice. They play it like in the middle, wouldn't they? Do
2: now, do Laverne and Shirley? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. So you know, I I always I always um kind of. Start to feel for people like that because it's like, yeah, I'm, I I shouldn't feel for them too much because they're probably preposterously wealthy. But yeah, yeah. you know,
2: <laughs> but but again, like that, like the sitcom, it was a committee songwriting job, was wasn't it? it? They were kind of like drafted in at ah. the last minute. So yeah, they, they they didn't get that much coin out of it. I don't think.
1: Mm. I wonder why they're called the Rembrandts. That's quite a pretentious name, actually.
2: It is. Who cares?
1: <laughs> Not I.
2: Great record, says Dale Winter. <laughs> Yes.
1: Yeah, whatever, Dale. Are you still here?
2: Yeah. So the following week, I'll Be There For You jumped three places to number three where it stayed for two weeks. The follow-up, This House Is Not A Home, only made it to number 58 in January of 1996 and they never troubled the charts again. In an interview on The One Show in 1996, Jennifer Aniston revealed that none of the cast of Friends liked the theme tune.
3: <laughs> oh. I'll be there for you there for me too
0: Great record. Listen, congratulations to Boyzone. Said and Done is the new album. It's straight at number one. They're here to sing a song from it right now.
3: time to make a change. Just relax, You're still young,
4: that's your fault. There's so much you have to know.
2: Manufactured in Dublin in 1993, when manager Louis Walsh held an open audition for 300 Irish lads who had to sing Careless Whisper, then a song of their choice, and then dance to I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred, <laughs> Boyzone made their first public appearance by dancing to a backing track and essentially carrying on like the gay exchange advert on the Irish chat show, the Late Late Show with <laughs> Gay Byrne. Their debut single, a cover of the four seasons Working My Way Back To You, got to number three in Ireland but did nothing here. The follow-up, however, a cover of the Osman's Love Me For A Reason, got to number one in Ireland but again failed to chart in the UK until they were offered a place on the Smash Hits Roadshow which propelled the song to number two in January of this year, held off number one by Stay Another Day by East 17 this cover of the 1970 Cat Stevens single, which was Ronan Keating's audition song, is scheduled to be the follow-up to So Good, which entered the chart at number three a few weeks ago and is currently at number 38. And it's off the LP Said and Done, which has Just Knocked It's Great When You're Straight, Yeah, by Black Grape, off the top of the album charts. Top of the Pops, they've gone back to this uh, album of the week thing that they used to do in the early 70s. Mm. But for different yeah. reasons, I think back then it was, you know, oh, here's 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 a chance to get in something yeah. for the heads, and <laughs> nowadays in 1995 it, it's uh, here's something for the dickheads. Boys so five oh.
4: stools sitting on stools.
2: Yes, <laughs> they Basically. yes. It's- yeah, they're all they're all sitting on these kind of like sawn off bar stools, like there were I don't know some. It's like a bit like a football panel, isn't it? Or, or, or a Q&A. You
4: know, the thing with the the, the stool thing is that um, the prop is meant to be so that um, there's this moment of excitement when they stand up for the key change. Yeah. 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 They yes. don't even do it in this song because there isn't one. No. Um, so what they do is no. they, they start clicking their fingers and girls in the audience yeah. scream. I mean, it's not exactly an Elvis hip shake, is it?
2: Just. <laughs> no geez. well they no. were very but they it, were
1: extremely wholesome but I mean like beyond wholesome really and it fucking arse wholesome like, because you know it's like who who is this who is it for and it's like it's for, it's for little girls and who would come to be called tweens I guess shortly I don't mm. know when the tween was invented but you know soon after this probably and mums that's who it's for. Yeah, um, because you're
2: you're way past this shit at the age of seventeen, aren't you, Sarah? Yeah, completely. I,
1: I had nothing to do with it Thank whatsoever, God. and and just found it, you know. Um, yeah, no, I I had nothing to do with them at all. Was there
2: ever a kind of a boy band that you were into when you were a bit younger? Um, you're kind of in the um the big fun era, aren't you? <laughs> Bros.
1: I mean, yeah, no, I found all that a bit ridiculous because I love pop music. I just didn't. I I found the whole um the the boy band thing. Uh, I was just a bit nonplussed by it, really. I did like I like take that. I did come around to take that because you know they were, mm. they were fucking great, and as I've probably said before, they played at my school, which was which was so what? awesome. They played at my school. No, come on, tell us about that. I'm sure I've done this bit before, surely. No, 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 no. Oh, well, well, okay. Well, um, okay. So the local uh, radio station Pulse FM, um, uh, where mm. um, Chris Moyles started his career. Um, yeah. Uh ran a competition to find the best teacher in uh in like in West Yorkshire. And what you had to do for this was vote. Um by and there were there was no limit to how many times you could vote. You had to like write the name of the teacher on a piece of paper and basically send, you know, and put it in a box and send it in. And so for like how many weeks, we just did this over and over again and we all agreed that it was Mr. Bagnall who was the maths teacher, who was just ace. And um
2: mm.
1: and yeah, he um and there was all this kind of it came down to us and like oh. um, Rastrick High just up the road.
2: Those cunts.
1: <laughs> yeah, those fuckers. And, uh, and the, <laughs>
2: the Rodney Bennett to your Grange Hill.
1: Apparently, there was all kinds of like shenanigans with people kind of like taking boxes of each other's votes and like stealing them and dumping them and stuff. But anyway, we oh, won God. in the end through fair means or foul. And the prize was to and have. And you knew what the prize was. And the prize was, take that came and played at our school. Yeah, um, this was uh, Brickhouse High School in, uh, I guess, ni- would it have been 94. I suppose or the year before this and um, yeah it was I don't know it was it was a kind of do what you like era of of uh, of, 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 right. of, of take that um, and Gary had his, his bleach his bleach do and they used to you know do backflips yeah. back clips across the stage and stuff so I mean I didn't you know I kind of hung back I wasn't at the front screaming but I was at the back going oh this is great you know I never yeah. knew
4: there was beef between Brighouse and Rastrick despite sharing yeah. a, a chart busting
2: brass band yeah
1: well, this is you know. Yeah, the arc- Terry
2: Wogan brought brought together the the the, the tribes, yeah. didn't I know, alas, and it was all for nothing.
1: I know. Well, this is the arc of history, you know. It's like uh, this is how these things go down, isn't it? Um, anyway, uh, but Boyzone, <laughs> I, I had I had no truck with it all. I because um, the thing is, subsequently, I kind of realised that Ronan Keating weirdly sounds a bit like Eddie Vedder.
4: <laughs> yes he does. Yeah. Yes he does. It's oh, Keaton,
1: it it
4: really a... You know, it's that It's like same. he's choking on a hard lump of phlegm, isn't it? It's horrible.
1: It's like it's when you try to you try to do a Roddy key to you have to sort of flex your throat in a kind of slightly alarming way. And it's like this is, it's a very put on thing. And also I must say, this is quite because you associate, you know, manufactured bands with this kind of glossy, kind of eerie perfection and kind of smooth edges and stuff and and they're still at this point this is kind of before you get that sort of like robotic refinement that you see a lot of the time now like even on you know on talent shows and stuff they're absolutely crack you know they've really they're really like drill and um you know this is this is actually pretty weak and again, I'm sure that... It's modern, piss I'm, poor, I'm isn't I'm sure it? they can't hear themselves and everything. But he's... Actually, then you hear when um, when Stephen starts, um, you know, doing a little bit of harmonising, you see he's got such a sweet voice and it's really pretty in it. It's actually like, oh, I want to let, let him let him do his bit. But Ronan is the lead yeah. singer. I've never yeah. figured out why Ronan Keating was the lead singer because
2: it was a really... Ronan Keating is, is the Alan Shearer of 90s pop, isn't he? <laughs> Boring as fuck and massively successful. Yeah.
4: I I saw Boyzone, actually, at the um, Smash Hits Poll Winners Party at Wembley. Mm. And it was weird because... Was this for work? Yeah, it was for work. Um, And I guess the audience would have been only a little bit younger than Sarah would have been. I suppose like 14 Mm. to 15 years old was the kind of age group. Um, And... uh, as a live act, Boyzone had these kind of silver puffer jackets and they were giving it some sort of tempt- sub-Temptations dance moves. But but Ugh. most of their material um, is, is this stuff, isn't it? It's the sitting-on-stools um, stand-up-for-the-key-change bollocks. Um, yeah. So he sat there, Keaton, with uh, Gately to his right. And I just wanted to get that right by um, doing a Google image search to, to make sure that it, that is Stephen Gately. And um, one of yes. the first picks to come up when I did that was Stephen Gately. With Michael Jackson, oh god. Oh, and they have oh the same Morris. hair. Oh God, yes, they have. Um, the,
1: that's the thing. He's got the same. This is one of the, you know, one of the worst things about that Michael Jackson clip for me is it's like, oh no, oh honey, oh your hair. Why don't you pay someone to tell you this isn't a, this isn't a good idea? You have got yeah. Stephen Gately's hair on your head. What are you doing? <laughs> um, but yeah, that's another thing about the stools. Actually, is I was I was getting narked about that because it's like they're the wrong height. So what you want is you want to be able to kind of. Prop yeah. one foot, put the other foot on the on the ground. Yeah, and then exactly. And you've got like a nice, that, that angles your body really nicely. It's quite a good effect. And they couldn't do that. They had to like man spread like crazy just to stay on the on the stools. Also, is one yeah. of them barefoot?
2: <gasps> yes.
1: One of them at least is barefoot. And I was just like, because oh, I know, Pricey, I know how you feel about, about men's bare feet. Oh, so God, I'm glad like, I didn't notice you're... that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And, you know, like, oh um So that that was uh, nothing. Nothing about this is good. Let's be honest. Also, but except for no. the so in the middle. So there's there's a little middle eight where nothing happens, yeah. and um and Ronan goes, "Boyzone live on top of the pops." Boys own live on top of the pops, and everyone yes. screams. And yeah. my brain actually,
2: yeah, we noticed, mate. My brain
1: actually capsized at this point. it's Like, what have you done? Yeah. You just punched a hole through reality and let let out the things that should never be, that should never escape. <laughs> it's good. like
2: look, Mark, I'm on top of the world, kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like uh, it's like, it's like Jimmy Percy, isn't it? Going, hello, mum. Oh. Guess who's on top of the pop scene. If he'd said
1: hello, mum, that might have been that might have been cute. But this was just like a weird yeah. sort of. Uh, it, it's just very. I was like, what are you trying to achieve? Well, it's like a
2: big shout out, isn't uh, it? Shout out it's like, it's to like yourself. That a rapper would do.
1: There is something quite endearing about. It. You can hear the sort of the soft screams of you know, like the the mating call of the teenage girl, which is always kind of mm. you know, it's always kind of adorable, even if you think that the. Uh, the object of, of their affection is, is really not worth it. Yeah. And you want to take them aside and go, look, he's got he's got blonde astroturf on his head and he sounds like the guy mm. from Pearl Jam if something terrible had happened yeah. to him. So, you know, you, you can do yeah. better.
2: But what girl would be into fucking boy zone when there's take yeah. that and he's 17 knocking about? Yeah, I... Sorry, if, 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 if any daughter of mine came home saying she was into boy zone, I, I'd go straight out and get her some fucking drugs. Say, <laughs> so, no, I'm not having this. It did... You you can do what you want, but you're not liking Boy Zone. What's wrong with Brian Arve? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, this this absolutely, um, you know, within, a, within a, a a few seconds, I was like, God, I really want to listen to um, Stay Another Day. And I want to watch E17. Because, yeah. you know, E17 obviously get get loads of shit, which is, um, you know, which is really not
4: deserved. Here's the thing, right, with Boy Zone recording Father and Son, because we've already established that Boy Zone were put together by Louis Walsh so we've got to look at it as a casting decision in a sense what's happened here we've got Ronan Keating singing the line look at me I am old but I'm happy Um, I am old yeah he he smiles ironically at that moment because he's 18 years old at that point he's (laughs) saying look at me I'm old but I'm happy now the thing with this song is that the Cat Stevens original is quite subtle and ambiguous there's that line You're still young. That's your fault. I've never been sure what that means. Does he mean fault in the sense of that's your flaw? Or does he mean you Mm. are to blame for your youth? It's it's interesting. It's a song that gets you thinking like that. Um, It's like Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen in the sense that it's been covered because it sounds like it ought to be a big, dumb ballad. But it's actually about something else. And the act covering the song are riding roughshod over the meaning of, of the original. Um, my my dad used to get very sentimental about um, Cat Stevens' uh, father and son, uh, and also um, Kansas' Carry On My Wayward Son, and Like Desperados Waiting for a Train by Jerry Jeff Walker. Yeah. He'd, he'd play those songs late at night with a glass of scotch and hope that they were telling me things he couldn't quite say himself. But will anyone ever have used the own version for this no mm. they, they'll 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 use it for a slow dance at a wedding sure but yeah. it's been deliberately fashioned to pretend that the true meaning of the song is not there because essentially mm. louis walsh is a cretin
2: <laughs> of course there's a great boy's own story isn't there where uh where they just had their first hit and they're uh they're, they're basically waving the dicks about and you know, playing Billy Big Bollocks and saying, "Oh, we want to meet our fans. We don't. We don't get chance to to mix with our fans." And he frog marched them out of the dressing room into the car park, opened up the boot, showed them all the CDs in the boot that he'd bought, and he just went, "There's your fucking fans. Now get back to fucking work."
4: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Winton D- Dale Winton says at the end, "That is a classy mm. record." And basically, that's all it exists for—is to sound
2: classy. But it doesn't. It's an awful performance. No, it's it a doesn't. terrible performance. Right from the off, the first line, Ronan Keating fucks up, and he—he he essentially comes off as that cunt on karaoke night in the tracksuit who. Um, Goes up and you know he's gonna do "Angels" by Robbie fucking Williams, and you know at some point in the night he's gonna get up and do the same fucking song again. I don't
1: know what's worse when when like a bloke gets up to do "Angels." There's always that moment of tension. You can feel it in the room. Like all the air disappears from yeah. the room. It's like, is he gonna make it? Is he gonna yeah. make it? And I don't know what's worse when they do or when yeah. they don't because you know you get that and yes. do it. Oh uh, yeah, the, the
2: the triple salco <laughs>
4: of karaoke, isn't it that? Yeah, it's it's partridge doing um they long to yeah. be close to you. It's like why mm. do birds
1: <laughs> But you can you can't really imagine this being done at karaoke though, the boys' own version of of, uh, of uh, this. It's just like ugh, everyone would yeah. just go to the bar, wouldn't they?
2: Nobody needs parental advice off Ronan Keaton, ever. No. And particularly no nobody in nineteen ninety five needs parental advice off Cat Stevens. No. You know, find a girl, settle down, kill Salman Rushdie. <laughs> Father and Son was eventually released in November of this year, went straight into the charts at number eight, and spent three weeks at number two, held off the top spot by Earth Song. Fucking hell, Michael Jackson. He re- resurrected the elephants, He he brought the world back, he restored the blood to the fields, and he kept Boyzone off number one over Christmas. Is there anything that man couldn't do? (laughs) That's that's my boy. The follow-up, Coming Home Now, got to number four in March of 1996, and the follow-up to that, Words, became the first of six number ones for the group. Ronan Keating would cover this song again in 2004 in a duet with Yusuf Islam, the former Cat Stevens, and he got to number two once again in December of
1: 2004.
0: boys own from their brand new number one album we're now going by satellite to montel jordan in pennsylvania Sound. you better ask somebody what's up london something for the honeys baby this is for you and you and definitely you i'm the type of guy who takes time to just kick back I turn around my baseball cap. I have a in on my lap. We've
2: already discussed Montel Jordan in Chart Music 21, and this is the follow-up to This Is How We Do It, which got to number 11 in May of this year. By this point in Top of the Pops' history, and to reflect the dominance of American artists on the charts whilst not having to rely on promo videos, Top of the Pops is using satellite technology to beam in live performances from the other side of the Atlantic, including Bon Jovi performing Always from Niagara Falls in 1994 and Celine Dion doing Think Twice from Miami Beach in the same year. Montal and his dancing chums are coming at us live from Dorney Park in Allentown, PA. According to a recent Google review, food is crappy, heinously overpriced, and staff is all underpaid children.
3: <laughs>
2: oh, and the song's a new entry this week at number 15. So the obvious first question is, satellite performances, Why? It is really bleak, isn't it? It goes via satellite
4: in the caption there like we're meant to be really excited just by that basic technological fact. Even um, Dale Winton beforehand goes... We're now going live to Montel Jordan in Pennsylvania. Yeah. you know, as if that's really exciting in itself. Um, and it is this mostly deserted funfair in broad daylight that, um, yeah. uh, 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 Dale at, at the end um says reminds him of Alton Towers, which is the has got weird yes. pronunciation of it. Um, You're very weird, very but, weird. But it's it, it it does look um particularly bleak, um, sort of underpopulated, uh. Um, fun fair in the daytime. They've thoughtfully mm. sent along two TOTP signs to hang on the fence behind, yes. <laughs> behind oh, Montel Jordan. Yeah, uh, behind... next to the pizza van. <laughs> Him and his two male and two female dancers tra- trying to look sexy in in a fucking fun fair. It's, yeah. yeah. It's- doesn't work it's does
1: really it? lame and towards the end you do see like there's some really non-plussed kids on like a on a kind of zoomy thing <laughs> next to it because they're in front <gasps> yeah. I, I love I love fairgrounds I'll always enjoy look so I'll just like zone out and just look at that so there's a really beautiful Ferris wheel but otherwise you know that's that is yeah. the, the, the best thing about this really it's just it's a nice bit of kind of um yeah. entertainment engineering um but yeah the satellite thing was just just a gimmick it's just because they could wasn't it and mm. it's like it's quite a it's like something a bit different
2: I mean, were there were there any memorable satellite performances? Because the only satellite-related performance from Top of the Pops that's ever stuck in my mind is when Madness were in Japan introducing the video for House of Fun, which had just got to number one. Ah. But yeah, they're, they're, they're just standing there holding up handwritten signs and running to camera back and forth holding up these handwritten signs, mm. which you couldn't read because the technology was so mm. shit. But the idea that, oh my God, there's Madness live, in Japan, that was incredible. By the mid '90s, it really wasn't a big deal at all, was well, well, it? Well, the
4: thing is, if you were a football fan or any kind of sports fan, then the idea of watching yeah. something via satellite was just kind of, you know, assumed that that, yeah. that you could do that. So um, they bring it into a pop music context, and we're suddenly meant to have our minds blown by it. It's it's, yeah. it's not going to work, really, is it?
2: And it's like, hang on, what about Cheggers doing a massive swap in, <laughs> in Swap Shop? You know, that's ridiculous and it's
4: t- we're a decade after live aid now you know where we've yes. watched the yeah, yeah. biggest music event in the world ever um via yeah. satellite so yeah we get it it's possible it's yeah just because you can do something doesn't mean
2: you should do it well so, exactly yeah but but it's top of the pops as a version to to the pop video isn't it yeah they'll allow it for michael jackson because there's no way they're going to get him any other way but montel jordan's video the, the video for this song is a lot better than this actual performance. Right. I mean, yeah, it's it's your it's your bog standard. Him and his mates are playing golf and and looking at tits basically. <laughs> yeah, and in this because he's still trying to look cool, even though it, it's
4: you know he, he must be roasting. He's got um oh, he's, God, he's got yeah. his backwards kangol beret on, um, which is very of the time. But he's also I quite like his leather coat. He's got his <laughs> long black leather coat, but he must be absolutely sweating like a pig in that. Yeah, but he does look like a potentially violent
2: Frank Spencer. Doesn't well, he, <laughs> he looks—he
1: looks like he's cosplaying as Blade, you know, but but hasn't kind of hasn't <gasps> got the full get-up because he's got like a white t-shirt on. And it's like, yeah, no, it's just whatever's happening there, it's just not quite working.
4: And this is the arse end of G-Funk, isn't it? This is the arse end of G-Funk. It's no, this is how we do it. This is how we do it was a banger. Um, Yeah. But this is not. Um, This is is how you shouldn't do it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. What's that? There's this lyric in it. Um, It goes, I call up my crew. I tell them, bring a brew and some Hennessy for the beach party. So call up your girlfriends. And you know there always tends to be an ugly one. Bring yeah. her too, fat or skinny. She likes to shoop with Montel and the SL coup. Fuck off. Oh, well, that's, that's nice. Isn't nice it? of him, though, isn't it?
2: Yeah. yeah. Just. Well, as uh, as the moments and whatnot said, the ones that aren't the best looking are the ones that do the best cooking.
1: <sighs> Christ, like You know,
2: all inclusive. I find. Uh, there's, there's also a bit where there you go, Doc. There's the barbecue. Get
4: on with it. There's also a bit where it sounds like. Does he really sing? could very well be the next Gary Neville.
0: Could very well be the next Gary Neville.
4: So <laughs> the, 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 song, the song's about, it's about Ronnie Johnson or, or Wes Brown. <laughs> yeah
1: um there was a bit you see um i i came to this when he said montel jordan i went oh right because i got him confused momentarily with donnell jones as in you know what's up which is a jam right and it's like no, oh this is no this is not mm, it's right. it's the other guy and this is not really a jam but um uh, yeah my my hackles kind of came immediately no. when he starts talking about a woman as a female in the first foot, and i was just like look if you the rule is right unless you are a cop or a naturalist you can't describe women as females okay this is not how it works and then of course and then there's the slam dunk of like yeah bring bring that bring the heifer that's in your mates because you know maybe she'll be good for a laugh or yeah. whatever I might whatever use i might find for her Ugh, fuck off Montel. Yeah. fuck off
2: i mean to, to my mind there's three fundamental things wrong with this song uh, number 1 it's not this is how we do it uh, number two, that the setting is bringing back awful memories of Hold Tight, the ITV kids show with the theme tune by Bad Manners. And uh, I often expect to see Bob Carroll G sort of wandering yeah. into shot at some point. But the the main point is that the the previous month, uh, D'Angelo has just released his debut LP, Brand Sugar, and has just raised the bar to absolutely ridiculous heights. And anything after that, uh sounds absolutely mm. piss poor. Yeah this, <laughs> yeah, this 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 is this is not doing it at all.
1: It's a nothing it's a bit of a nothing yeah. track, isn't it? And it and a bit of a nothing yeah. performance.
2: Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Uh I I and the, I think the one thing that sums it up is they're they're doing sort of different angle shots and stuff like that. And on one of them, uh you can see a cuddly lion looking mournfully at the camera. Uh, As if to say, oh, Montel, you've fallen the fuck off.
4: (laughs) Dog. And the BBC don't even have the courage of their convictions because just as they did with Michael Jackson, they interrupt it with um, this scrolling thing saying, uh, Top of the Pops predicts top 40 entries on Sunday for blah, blah, blah. Yeah, like, where on earth did they get that kind
2: of uh, inside information from? So, the following week, Something for the honeys dropped 16 places to number 31. Not enough... The follow-up I like got to number twenty-four in October of nineteen ninety-six, but his career was put on hold when he was disorientated by a flare on stage while he was supporting boys to men. Leaned against the backstage wall, discovered it was actually a black curtain, and fell seven feet onto the back of his head. Ah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Whoa. Oh my god. Oh, okay. I feel I, I feel oh. slightly bad now for, for for cussing him out so badly, but. God. Yeah. No, that's not very nice, is it?
2: He retired in two thousand and ten when he gave a performance at the Arizona State Fair Stadium to seven people, one of whom was his manager. Have either of you ever reviewed such a poorly attended gig? Well, it was the Romo Tour.
0: (laughs) 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 So for the honeys. Oh, you don't have to be so so bad. no, I don't know about you, but Alan Town Pennsylvania looks a bit like Alton Towers. Still what can you do? Listen, simply read in a couple of weeks exclusive. Meanwhile, here's Echo Belly. I
3: wanna do blow!
2: Winton points out the similarity between the location of the previous song and Alton Towers. Fucking hell, Dale, you're were, you were only about an hour away from Bloody Alton Towers when you're in Nottingham. Before he shills a forthcoming satellite performance by Simply Red, and then introduces Great Things by Echo Belle. Formed in London in 1993, Echo Belly were a multiracial, multi-sexual band who released their debut LP, Bellyache, in 1993 on an independent label, which led to a deal with Rhythm King. They were immediately lumped in with the Britpop movement, and after scraping the top forty with their debut single, Insomniac, they just about made it in when I Can't Imagine the World Without Me got to number thirty-nine in July 1994. This is the follow-up to Close But, which got to number 59 in November of 1994. It's the first single from the forthcoming LP On. It featured on the Britpop Now show a couple of weeks ago, and it's a new entry this week at number 13. Well, finally, fucking hell, we've had all these bloody Americans being all American, and now, finally, we've got some some proper British people singing about proper British things (laughs) in their proper British voices. (laughs) Thank God. Yeah. So yeah, Echo Belly, I know, I knew absolutely fuck all about them uh, before starting to do the research for this episode of Chart Music. And I sat down and listened to this and I I don't know how you feel about them. I'm sure I'm going to hear, but I just thought, yeah, this is all right, actually.
1: Well, yeah, that's you know what's what's not to like, really. I don't think they were you know they weren't especially kind of celebrated at the time, but um and you know there's no. there's kind of not there's not an awful lot there, but it's a lovely, bright. I was happy to hear this again. You know, I was like, yeah, mm. I, I've enjoyed, and when it was over, I was like, I enjoyed that, and it's like it's Brit, you know, it's 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 like you know we sort of started with with some froth, and it's froth. This is like Brit pop, Brit pop froth. Um, and, nice. you know, I hesitate. I don't want to kind of do that thing. It's like, oh, it's a, it's, you know, oh, she's a girl. She's not, she's not got any, you know, there's no substance there. But it's like, she's very, she's this great presence. She's really sort of adorable. She's very cute. I mean, they're all, they're Sonia all Sonia Madan. Sonia Madan. Um, and they're all I should point out they're all wearing school uniforms it's not just her but yes she um she's she's there in a in a in a shirt and a a tie and just she's just as cute as a bug's ear she just looks lovely she looks happy to be there and she kind of come up she actually does kind of hold hold the stage and I remember seeing them um they were at the uh kind of half built but still open McAlpine Stadium in um um uh, sort of by Huddersfield and REM were playing and Echo Belly were like the first support massive stadium yeah. and she's there just she sort of skipped on hello we're echo belly she's very you know and completely fearless about it because um she was um uh originally from from delhi and had apparently yes. a very strict upbringing and you know kind mm. of couldn't really listen to pop music or, or do much until you know um until she was well into her into her teens and so when you kind of realize that that's where she's coming from it's not you know it, it's not a very deep song but it, it's especially from from the perspective of this hell year it's like mm. you know it it there's something really charming about it it's a very endearing kind of naivety and 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 gutsiness about the kind of the sentiment mm. of you know and and the performance itself you know she's um she's yeah. just really adorable
2: yeah like you said she's she's in uh, a school uniform uh, with shorts and doc martens and uh, a couple of weeks after this, Everett True Melody Maker had a right go at her in an interview for this outfit, uh, asking her if it was appealing to certain paedophilic <laughs> tendencies amongst her male fan base.
1: Oh, could you fuck off a bit, though? You know, it's I do I I do get quite sorry. I get I suppose it's like with the first box thing. Is it's like oh look at you, look at you displaying displaying yourself. Look, you've got your mm. you've got your belly out, or you've got your you're pandering to this or that, and it's like well you know yeah. it's immediately shutting down any sense that somebody might know what they're doing or might just be doing it because yeah. that's what they want to do. And that's what they want to present. Yeah. It's like, Ooh, is yeah, it, I mean, is I it mean, a sex? Are you doing a sex? Well, yeah. not necessarily. Or maybe, I, maybe <laughs> I am. Can you, can you lay off a bit? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the
2: fact that she's wearing shorts and not a flippy little tennis skirt, that, you know, that's one thing. And I, and I when I, when I first saw this, I thought, Oh, she's, she's come dressed as that. Mm. And, not whilst not realizing that the rest of the band had done the same as well, you know um you know, they've they've got school uniforms on and and at first glance, you think oh they're being a bit menswear or, or a bit mod but no they've got their they've got the shirt sleeves out they've got the the bottom of the shirts out and all and all that kind of stuff, and it suits the song really well because it actually sounds like the last day of school, yeah, yeah forever, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's and, and, you know, and she's singing on about, oh, yeah, OK, that's a bit done. I'm growing up now and I want to do this and I want to do that. And, you know, I want to find out what love is. And, you know, a bit of a masturbation reference and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. But it was like, oh, no, this, this fits really well, doesn't it?
1: Yeah.
4: Simon. I want to do great things, she sings, to which the answer is, go on then. Um, <laughs> I don't want to compromise, she sings to which the answer is, you already have because this is the most compromised landfill indie rock ever it's the most bleached out, vapid shit um, it makes Ooh. Sleeper sound radical, in the Britpop off-license, it's the most ordinaire of the van ordinaire, they've got no flavour <laughs> um, Sonia Aurora Madan, her voice is just so vanilla, and it's the rich mm. you see, rich people have nothing interesting to say Um she had a flat on Baker Street that her parents had paid for, and this is how she was able to launch a Britpop career. Um, right. Morrissey was a fan. Madonna wanted to sign them to Maverick. Um, I don't know why. This was their biggest hit by far, but it's just absolutely empty. The one thing I will um, uh, kind of defend them on is the school uniform thing, because I, I recently mm. reread an old interview with them where it was explained that this song is from the point of view of... Um, somebody in their childhood thinking about what they want to be when they grow up. So it's like mm. a conceptual thing they're doing there. The one the yeah. one thing I get from this performance is that um, Debbie Smith on guitar looks awesome. Um, mm. Debbie Smith is awesome. Um, she, yes. she was brought in. She was formerly of Curve and she's um, since then been in many, many bands. Um, this week she smashed a guitar up at the Reading Festival, rock and roll. But she's just an all-round awesome person. But it wasn't really her band. It was... Uh, um, Sonia and the fella with the Scandinavian name, whose name uh, escapes me temporarily, but this song, yeah, I'm sorry, boring, 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 boring.
1: I still like him. I still like it better than Sleeper. Like I would listen to this over anything Sleeper did. Sorry, I mean it's just you know I just didn't like Sleeper at all, mm. and I've her voice. Oh, me yeah. Gone. I've uh, you know, and nothing against nothing against um, nothing against her. I think uh, I think Louise Wenner is generally a good thing, but I just really hated Sleeper.
2: I've heard this. Like two or three times compared to the millions of times I've heard it and "Country House," but this is better than both of them.
1: Yeah, I'd go along with that. And
2: I'm no, I'm, I am no Britpop aficionado, <laughs> but it's like, well, this is all right. This is all right. It, it's much as I fun. loathe Oasis, I'd say that "Roll
4: with It" has got a bit more substance to it, a bit more guts and just something to it than this. Yeah, know.
1: but mm. the thing, the thing is, as I, as I wrote down arsishly here I notice um is the the value of music (laughs) isn't only in its quality this is the thing it doesn't like music doesn't have to be good to be good like to have good in it you know and it's it's like this is it you know it's but it's bubblegum basically it doesn't have to be you know it doesn't have to be more than what it is yeah I mean Echabelli are not going to come anywhere near my list of you know favorite bands even of you know even of this time but um yeah like I said my response to it seeing it again after you know x many years is like Oh, that was nice. You know, it was similar to the feeling that I had after um the the first one after um the berry. They
4: got a, a pretty positive ride in the press, actually. Mm. They they were usually written about in fairly positive terms. Um because the people who could be bothered writing about them tended to be fans, but the rest yeah. of us were very kind
2: of meh. So the following week, great things dropped eleven places to number twenty-four. The follow-up King of the Curb got to number 25, and they'd have one more top 20 hit with Dark Therapy in March of 1996 before they split up for the first time in 2004.
0: world superstar and exclusive on top of the pops, this is Michael Bolton.
2: Born in New Haven, Connecticut in 1953, Michael Bolatin began his career as a solo act in 1975 before joining the rock band Blackjack in 1978. Two years and two LPs later, he anglicised his surname, returned to a solo career and first came to prominence when he wrote How Am I Supposed to Live Without You for Laura Branigan in 1983 and then I Found Someone, which Cher picked up in 1987. After cranking out a selection of cover versions in the late 80s, he first sprayed his musk upon the UK charts when his own version of How Am I Supposed to Live Without You got to number three for three weeks in March of 1990. This is the follow-up to Lean On Me, a cover of the Bill Withers song, which got to number 14 in May of 1994, and it's not in the charts yet. Well, me dears, we can talk about this Britpop stuff that all the kids are going on about all we like, but to top of the pops' mind, this is the main event. Christ. This man who looks like Fabio's mam. (laughs) Who's Fabio? Fabio was that male model who got hit in the face by a seagull. Do you not remember? No. He was on a roller coaster. (laughs) Oh, my God. It sounds amazing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Sarah, you know all about Fabio, don't you? Sure,
1: though. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I'm trying to picture him now. Oh, please
2: don't tell me I'm the only person here who knows who Fabio I'm is. I'm straight onto YouTube after we finish doing this, I tell you. Oh, was
1: yeah. a male model. This will be the, the bonus. Is there actual footage of this incident? Yes, there is. Do you mean? Do you mean he looks like Fabio, literally with like mid seagull seagull on
2: his face? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe so. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, the the fucking haircut. Americans, they, they would not let go of that mullety look no. know, for a, such a long time.
1: He, he's a yacht wizard. I'm telling you, he's
2: <laughs> yeah. It's not a... just a mullet. It's
4: it's it's a mullet that's doing that thing of growing it long at the back because he's going thin on top, which kind of
1: yeah. makes yeah. it. yeah it's a yeah. mega mullet.
2: What he looks like is old man pant moustache it? <laughs> it really does it's not flattering oh. you just think like the, for fuck's sake cut your hair you've got a good bone structure on your face make make the most of it poor,
1: poor Bolatin. i feel i feel bad for him <laughs> um yeah so yeah so this starts off i i hadn't um i hadn't realized this is actually kind of built on an element of um it's not a sample is it but it's an element of why by carly simon
4: Yeah, it kind of interpolates it, doesn't it? That's a deliberate
1: thing, isn't it? Of course, which goes, why does your love hurt so much? It's not necessarily the best association you want to have in people's heads when he's asking if he can touch you there. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, questions to Uh, which the answer is fuck no. Um, (laughs) Yes. Also, um, there's a so we've got uh, there's a um, you know we've got three uh, kind of classic lady backing singers and uh, a lady sax player as well who has very little Mm. to do. Either kind of, you know, yeah. so so she's just kind of she's quite static, and occasionally does a little part. Yeah, but it's a fucking
2: massive saxophone. Yeah, massive, it's a massive it? honking, I mean, big That's bass like a, sax. It,
1: it takes a half the
2: song to be able to fucking lift it up to a mark. What, what kind Amazing. of a,
1: what, what kind of a sax is that? I don't know. It's um, it's a bit, it's a big one.
4: Well, it's, it's
1: it's a bass one, right? It's a big yeah, band. yeah, and occasionally it's like, and I was kind of waiting. Mm. I thought, oh, maybe there'll be a solo. But as we were saying before, because uh, and the 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 last time I was talking about when when do you think the last. Saxophone solo was on top of the pops. So I would actually really like to know this. Anyway, Ooh. we're not going to get one here. Yes. So it's just a few, a few kind of, a few little, little rude parps. And it's a. It's, yeah. it's a and
2: you do get a lot of fluty bollocks as well, well don't I you? Well, I didn't
1: realize because panpipes uh, were kind of cruise yeah. control for either peace or sex or sex peace or mm. some combination. But on this occasion, you actually get. <laughs> or,
2: or, or relaxing in your car when you. Yeah. eating loads of Toblerones on the way up to Dundee, I'm like
1: con- considering <laughs> some like you know spiritual matters, you know, um, from from your yacht. Um, but on this occasion, I didn't realise you could actually have like a stab of panpipes. But there is in fact a, a stab. There is a, a kind of a cacophony. Of pan- I'm not sure that's what they're supposed to be used for. Um, no, <laughs> just.
4: Hey, look, he's, he's a radical. He's a musical radical, Sarah. Get with it. <laughs> yeah, I don't
1: know what's going on in this song. It made me feel, you know. Slightly uncomfortable, although not as uncomfortable yeah. as if because in the um, in the caption that comes up at the beginning, it just says, "Can I touch you there?" and there's no punctuation at all. And I <laughs> I remember, can I touch? Can I touch you there? Do you mind if I touch? "All right, if I touch you there." Yeah. Um, which
4: but what's worse, can I touch you there or can I touch you? Dot dot dot, 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 there. dot. there. I know. Yeah.
1: No, no, you can't. It's just. Oh, it, it's, <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, and it's- in, the,
2: in the in the asking if you can touch someone's stakes, I think even after what we know now, Gary Glitter still shades him. <laughs> Fucking hell. Well, at least he's inviting to be
4: touched, isn't well, he? Uh, yeah. Rather, yeah. well,
1: you know, as we know now, there's a lot of debate around consent, you know, and enthusiastic consent, which is you know the best consent there is. So you know, but I, I cannot give yeah. my consent enthusiastically or otherwise to anything about this.
4: Yeah. He he uh, doesn't just wanna to touch you there, he wants to reach the very deepest part of you. Oh um, yeah. Which, you know, it's extraordinary really. I, I I don't know, using some kind of probe. Well is um, he talking about is realize, he actually but,
1: kind of inferring that like, well, I don't wanna boast, but do you know what I mean? There's there's it's gonna it's gonna go all the way in there. It's gonna be like Yeah, you know, yeah. It's yeah, gonna totally be tickling true. the bottom of your lungs, love, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
4: the thing is he's not he's not convincing as as a sexy lover man he's convincing no. as heartbroken that's what he does isn't yeah, it yeah it's like an- like anguish thing.
1: that pure kind of scream. yes how am i supposed to yeah no, it doesn't really yeah yeah but not
4: not like hey baby that's not really his thing uh yeah so and, and this and also reggae it's kind of yacht reggae that oh he's doing here. god yes I, I don't know if it really suits him any more than I know if that sort of beigey white suit suits him it reminds me of um, what the Liverpool football team wore um, about a year later yes. at the FA Cup final disastrously oh god yeah um, yeah that that, um, that ecru cream suit mm. uh, where they got bad but well didn't get battered, but they got beaten by Man United yes um, in a show of hubris wearing these awful suits uh, before the Cup final um yeah. Yeah, Mike, uh, Michael Bolton, he's a poor man's Michael McDonald. He's a destitute man's Daryl Hall. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. Um, is, is he a good bloke? He seems like he maybe might be a good bloke. You always yeah. have to check um, now if, if
1: they've gone Trump, don't yeah. you?
4: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 I don't know. I don't know. I should have, I should have done, done a bit of checking there. He sort of seems all right, but um, this is horrible. And amazingly, it went on to reach number six. I, I can't believe it, but it did. Um, but also the, the weird thing about this is that the aura of being a big star um, has kind of lingered around him um, up until 1995 in much the same way that his hair has lingered on from the 80s. That even though he hasn't really had a massive hit, I think you said his last single got to number 14 and he hadn't actually had a top 10 hit since 1991 when he covered uh, When A Man There's A Woman. Um, nevertheless, he was officially a big star such that, you know he he got to announce himself at the start of the show and all of that business isn't it weird that um if if you're a certain kind of artist that that status is kind of irrevocable it just it just sort of stays with you that that you know possibly if if top of the Pops was still going now he could turn up and it's like it's michael bolton Yeah. yeah
2: so two weeks later can i touch you there enter the chart at number 14, and would go as high as number 6. His first top 10 hit since 1991, but the last one in the UK. The last time we heard of Michael Bolton, he was on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert singing the words of Donald Trump's National Security Advisor, John Bolton. So it's fair to say he's on our side. Yeah,
1: he's one of a, One of ours, yeah. All right, then. Good. Whew.
2: Bless him. Okay. Okay. He's alright right, He's fine yeah. Good on you Michael Yeah and Annie hair haircut Thank
3: fuck
0: Come on baby Oh You get me right there Michael Love that track Let's have a look at the top ten At ten Everybody from Cloth Oh she was here earlier That's De Lacey And Hideaway A new entry Eight, Never Forget, Take That, Could We Ever. Seven, Waterfalls, TLC. Six, I'll Be There For You, The Rembrandts, they were here earlier too. Five, The Sunshine After The Rain, didn't she start the show? That's Barry. Four, I Love You Baby, The Original. Three, You're Not Alone, Michael Jackson. Two, Roll With It, (laughs) Oasis. Once long in just a moment, meanwhile, have a look at this. Thank you, top of the box viewers. You gave us that this week when you voted us the most popular program in the National Television Awards. That's great. We say thank you for that. Keep watching. And now, Country House is Blur. They are top of the box.
2: Winton brandishes a national television award that you wouldn't use to wedge the bog door open and runs down the top 10. That award's fucking horrible, isn't it?
1: Well, most awards are, to be honest. I mean, they're, they're quite, they're, they're usually quite unlovely. I have to say, having held someone else's Oscar and someone else's BAFTA. You know they are—they're um, kind of impressive in a particular mm. way, but they're not—they're not pretty. You can't just leave that hanging. Come on, name names. <laughs> yeah, and a Grammy actually. I've got like the set. Whoa! Um,
2: Fucking hell. No,
1: this is who's um, uh, who's um, yeah, no, it is uh a friend. Uh, no, my uh, sorry, my friend's brother is a is a producer and uh, is a film producer, and um, so I've I visited his house and uh, very very carefully and gently hefted the ba BAFTAs are incredibly heavy I'm surprised people don't drop them more often it's just like you know especially yeah. when you're like shaking yourself and going oh my god I've won a thing but yeah the um the, <laughs> yeah. the television award is um it's just like a big it's sort of a big hunk of glass isn't it and you can't and of course on, on telly it doesn't um mm. I don't know why they make them so they don't look good on telly it's like that's mm. how people are going to see them but yeah um, so Dale, Dale yeah. taking credit here, I think, for uh, you know, kind of swanning in and going, look at this—that I didn't win, but I'm holding it anyway.
2: Yeah, yeah. The only award I've ever won is is magnificent. It's uh, I won I won the erotic award about ten <laughs> years ago. I was I was award winningly erotic in two thousand and eight for best blog. And uh, it's it's a golden cock with wings. Nice. It's beautiful. I was going to give it to me mum, but she's only got a, well, she's got a flat screen tele. So uh, <laughs> I, I've got it on top of my really old massive tele, which is probably the only reason I've still got that tele somewhere somewhere to put my golden cock. I, I won
4: I won a few awards a few years ago for uh, music journalism. Uh, they yeah. used to have these awards for you know. Uh, best live review of the year and stuff like that. And um, I won it three years running. And the first year it was... um Whoa. I know, I'm just casually dropping that in there. Um, <laughs> the the first year it was just like an engraved pen. And the third year it... <laughs> like you wrote Cracker Jack. Yeah yeah, yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes. 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 Oh, man. Um, and the third time it was a fake Olympic medal because it was 2012. Um, but the one oh. in the middle, um, it was a blue plate like a dinner plate that was done up to look like one of those blue plaques you have on your wall oh uh, yes saying, oh. Simon Price lived here um but the best thing about it was uh it was presented to me um by I hope I've got this right that he actually presented it to me but either way I've got a photo of Bez from the Happy Mondays handing me that plate
1: wow. yes I remember this because I, I was yeah. saying like if you if you had a blue plaque for Bez it would just have to say Bez Bez
4: yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah.
2: Bez, and then in brackets, Bez. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, yeah. have you ever eaten your tea off that award?
4: No, I haven't. And I'm oh, I'm, for fuck's sake! I'm terrified. It's the of, first thing I uh, do Well, this is why you and me are different, Al. Yeah, I'm. I'm terrified yeah. of breaking it. I've, I, every time I've you know moved house or anything like that, I've I've uh, very carefully transported it.
1: So what yeah, you're telling us there, Al, is that basically you you eat your porridge off your golden cock every morning, right? Oh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> spooning it into your mouth going it's the sweet taste of recognition
2: he uses it for stirring <laughs> his cauldron of porridge <laughs> the, the the other question that's hanging in the air regarding my award is no i haven't
1: <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't gonna go or, or oh,
2: no nobody else has either i wasn't gonna and go, nor was I it molded go. on yourself by cynthia plastercaster certainly not based on me yeah. You can actually see it from your sofa <laughs> while it's on top of the telly. Does it
1: follow you around the room <laughs>
2: <laughs> with its one eye? Well, it, well, it's awful because I, I forget it's there now, and I'm looking for I'm looking for someone to move into my house. There's a spare room going, and you know there's been people come round, and the minute the lever went, oh yeah, me cock, I, did, I didn't put me cock away. So after the top ten rundown. Winton introduces this week's number one. Of course, it is Country House by Blur. We've already covered Blur in Chart Music 21 when they did Girls and Boys, and since then they've scored their second top 10 with Park Life, had their first number one LP with Park Life, swept the board at the Brit Awards, and pissed off Liam Gallagher, who was sitting two tables away from them with a face like a smacked ass telling them, you fucking look me in the eye and tell me you deserve that award every time Blur came back with another one. This single, the follow-up to End of a Century, which got to number 19 in November of 1994, was debuted at the band's gig at Mile End Stadium and was scheduled to be released by Food Records in mid-August as the lead-off single from their new LP, The Great Escape. However, When they found out that Oasis were planning to release the first single from their new LP, Definitely Maybe, Roll With It, a full six weeks before the LP and a week before Country House, they moved the release date of Country House back a week, meaning that both singles would go on sale on the same day. At first, both parties claimed the joint release date was mere coincidence, the Blur camp said their hand was forced as giving Oasis a weak start would deny them a number one, as they would have appeared on top of the Pops first, while the Oasis camp claimed that their new single was ready to go and there was little point in sitting on it, but the first public shot was fired when Chris Evans played Damon Olburn a burst of roll with it over the phone on the Radio 1 breakfast show and Olburn responded by singing a few lines from status quos rocking all over the world, which led to Noel Gallagher describing Blur as quote a bunch of middle class wankers trying to play hardball with real working class heroes. <laughs> end quote. Oh, man. As the war of words raged on, and both singles were featured on the top of the pops before last, the newspapers of the day went mental over it, and peaked with the Sun story about a married couple in Bristol called You Blurty Rat see what they did there, which read, Oasis Mad Mandy, Vivian Thomas and Blur fan Richard have waged war at home as the band's battle to be number one. Mandy, 24, was so angry at Richard constantly playing new Blur disc country house that she went on a nookie strike, banished him to the sofa and threw his Blur CD collection out of the window. Richard took his revenge by putting over Oasis CDs in a microwave oven and brazenly wearing his blur t shirt. The phrase the phrase nookie strike just doesn't get used enough these days. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. doesn't. Yeah. You, know, you know, meanwhile Bosnia <laughs> Although William Hill had established Oasis as favourites for number one, Blur had released Country House on two separate CD singles and on cassette, while Roll With It came out on 7-inch and 12-inch and a CD, which was a pound more expensive than Country House. This helped Blur sell 50,000 more copies that week and win the battle of Britpop. This is the second week at number one, and we're getting a repeat of last week's performance. Before we get stuck into this... It's worth pointing out that this is the only song on this episode so far that isn't a new entry or not in the charts yet. Mm. Fucking hell, the charts were mental in them days, weren't they? Yeah, they really were. Um, Four hundred and fifty
4: thousand copies sold, it says, um, if I read correctly. Yeah, on yeah that, yes. That's that's phenomenal, isn't it? Is um, a- yeah, it's ridiculous. It's, people actually bought stuff in those days. It's yeah. it's, it's yeah. another world. Um, I wonder yeah. how it's, many it's, of those copies still we'll
1: exist.
2: Try telling the youth about that nowadays.
4: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to explain to younger people, and part of my job as a uh, music journalism tutor is to do this, um, just what a big mm. deal this was at the time. And obviously it was completely orchestrated very cleverly by the PR people behind both bands. But nevertheless, um, it was on uh, the uh, BBC Evening News, the ITV Evening yes. News. Um, NME yeah. had led with it on the front cover with a mock-up of a Muhammad Ali fight saying the UK Heavyweight Championship... And um, mm. it was a sort of thing where you were expected to have an opinion and take a side, yeah. and um, yeah. as as if you know you had to like one of those two bands. You couldn't just say, "Well, none of the above, thanks." Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um,
2: uh, nor could you say both of them.
4: Yeah, and, I, even though obviously a lot of people did. Well, yeah, um, I'm I'm interested by that that claim uh, in your intro there, by the way, that uh, um, one of the records being one pound more. Uh, helped Blur mm. number one. As if you go into the shop thinking, "Ah, oh, I I want one of those records, <laughs> yeah. but uh, I don't know which one." And it's, oh, yeah. that was cheaper. That'll do. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's quite but, bleak, isn't it? Really, if that's what it came down to in the end, it's like cause I didn't really, I didn't, I, I've never heard that before. It's like, what? Seriously, mm. you know?
4: <laughs> I, I I was actually there at that um, Mile End gig where they um, yes, you were where they a or... witness
2: to history. Simon. Yes,
4: um, I I'd forgotten they did that, but. Um, I I do remember hearing them play it at V97 a few years later and um, Mm. I really cherish this memory because I love it when bands have an albatross which is a song that's unusually chirpy and poppy for them and they then get all pissy about it and they then try and sort of wash their hands of it and 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 you know act like they're they're too cool for the song well um the other example being rem with shiny happy people and i just think yeah well fuck you you wrote it you deserve to have that hanging yeah. around your neck forever we've had to listen yes. to it on the radio so screw you if that means if you play a gig and you have to play it tough shit and i remember um v97 uh blur were into their kind of serious phase now, and they're trying to sound like Pavement or whatever. You know, it's just mm. the time of Song Two and Beetlebum and all that stuff. Um, yeah, they. Uh, I remember I was leaving the the field. I was on the shuttle bus back to the Chelmsford train station, and um, you you could hear Blur in the distance doing Country House, and I thought, Yeah, fuck you, because um, <laughs> you deserve this. You wrote it. I I basically like Blur. I think I think Blur. Are um, are a good band. They've they've done a lot of good stuff. They've done a bit of annoying stuff. They, this yeah. is well up there in the annoying category. Um, yeah. Well, before we go into the song, we we we
2: have to let's discuss roll with it. Oh, okay. Go on then. Fucking cat shit, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think this know, song though, kind of. Uh, it turned it turned me against them a bit, to be honest. I thought that this is this is fucking boring. I
1: think it's 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 kind of um, you know some of the worst of them, the laziest of, of both bands, or not, you know. And I do like I am one of those who who I mm. I, I like both of them, um, in in their own in their own ways and to differ, differing and varying degrees depending on what's going on. But um, at the time, yeah, it's like roll with it. Is, I Is gonna say Oasis have, have done some really good B sides, but it's like it's a B side really, and. Mm. Yeah, no, I've got. There's, there's nothing much to say about it, really. I mean, there's not much to, um, you know. I mean, Country House is basically a novelty record, but um, you know, Oasis did yeah. sa- a, a Roll with It did kind of sound like Oasis. It was almost. I mean, you can never imagine them doing self parody, but that's about as close as they would get to it. I
3: think.
4: Mm. Yeah, I mean, my my yeah. my feelings on Oasis are no secret. You know, I I do think that they're the greatest cultural evil to happen to britain in the last <laughs> 25 years but that said um roll with it it is what it is it's them doing their thing it's got a bit of guts and bravado to it um whereas th- even though i think blur the better band um this is actually the worst
2: that you know the worst of the two songs um country house got to take another quote from our good friend taylor parks from his brit pop article so as blur and oasis battled it out for number one with singles that were almost supernaturally shit. <laughs> Everyone was informed that this was terribly important. Yeah, it's nice when a band you liked as well, but no, this was more than that. This was really important. At the time, other kinds of music were having laws made against them or having their venues closed. But this, this was important. So Simon, how did Melody Maker cover this? Do you remember hearing the news that both these bands were putting out singles on the same day. Did a did a ripple go through the office?
4: It did. Yeah, we didn't go as big on it as NME did, and I think part of that was just down to the fact that we were always second in line when it came to getting <laughs> exclusive interviews, and we must have mm. known that NME had something something big lined up. So, uh, I've, mm. yeah, I've, I've I've got the. Uh, um, the, the copy of Melody Maker from the previous week here, and it's oh, and it's, yeah, and it's in quite small letters on the front cover. It's Oasis slash Blur, who's number one, but it's among a jumble of other things on the front cover. Um, so we, we we relatively played it down, I think. Um, mm. I, I I remember, uh, and I've told this story before on chart Music. I remember um, the day that uh, um, the the charts were read out because I, I used to play football uh, every Sunday with. Uh, of course. Damon Albarn um, in in a kind of music biz kick around that happened in Regent's Park, organised by um, Andy Ross, who was Blur's manager and uh, record boss, uh, lab, uh, record label boss. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I, I, there's a thing in Melody Maker's uh, rumour mill column that says Damon turned up to Sunday football. Brandishing bottles of champagne and singing "Roll with It" and laughing—that's um, bollocks. He didn't. Ooh. He was very coy about it. But um, yeah. there, there were celebrations afterwards down at Soho House. Um, yeah, that was the one where Graham Coxon tried to chuck himself out the window. Oh, the thing it? with Graham is right. Graham, uh, and in this performance here, he's trying to look above it all somehow. Mm. You know, he he co-wrote this song for fuck's sake. Mm. But he's trying to have it both ways and maintain his Mr. Indie cool. He's the indie member of Blur, isn't he? I actually, I, yeah. I prefer Damon. At least Damon is committing to being a twatty lead singer. He's doing his bit. Mm. That's his job. Um, he's there in his capper tracky top, like a middle-class boy pretending mm. to be a, a, an old-school football
2: hooligan. He's doing yeah. his ju- It's a very nice top, no, though. Yeah. That's, the first <laughs> okay, right. that's, a, that's the first takeaway I had. Yeah. The main takeaway <laughs> I have from this performance is, well, oh, that's a nice, nice top. top. I'd have liked i'd like yeah, that and
4: he's he's doing his jazz hands and his mugging and looking very pretty yeah. with his big eyes and all that and it's fine he's mm. he's doing his bit and, and yeah like i say at least he commits to being a lead singer I, I i like damon as a as a person i used to get on with him quite mm. well i've got this memory of being at some music biz piss up um uh it would have been a year or two before this uh and and blur were there and we got chatting and I can't remember. We're probably reminiscing about the early eighties because, uh, uh, they'd started dressing like they were a two tone band. Um, yeah. And, uh, um, he, he sort of broke away from the conversation and said, this is great, isn't it? Cause like you're a goth and I'm a mod, but we can get on. It's <laughs> <laughs> <No. laughs> <laughs> quite sweet.
2: Um, but yeah, um, cheese Tory of course can fuck off. Uh, know, got- <laughs> oh man. Alex fucking James. Can fuck off. Where there's cheese, there's a balance. Yeah. Um,
4: now th- this record, this song. Um, I I know the guy who it's written about. Um, De- De- Dave Dave is a mate of mine now. Weirdly, and the last couple of years. Uh, he, he lives down in Brighton. He's actually uh, become um, a, a Labour councillor down in, in Shoreham. So good on you, Dave. Um, yeah, uh, oh, lovely well, fella. Um, I'm I, I'm not sure. What's his house like now? <laughs> I've not been to his house, um, but it'll, if it is a very big house, it'll be by the seaside, not in the country. Um, but oh. uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure how accurate the depiction of him in this song is, of whatever breakdown he was supposedly going mm. through with his... Uh, you know, expensive luxury lifestyle uh, in the 90s. But um, he he seems like a lovely chap nowadays, that's all I can say. Good. Oh, that's nice. Um, there's actually um, a bit from... Uh, uh, this week's Melody Maker, where uh, in, in the newspapers, where Dave Rountree gives his feelings about uh, Blur being at number one. Um, he says he never had the slightest doubt that Blur would be number one, um, but he says he spent the week hiding in a mystery retreat in France. Um, only emerging when the result had been announced and he says it was quite a relief actually because we'd been shooting our mouths off for a while but it's good no more Mm. than we deserve in my opinion and then he goes on about the hype in the papers the insane you know radio and tv and all that stuff and even bookies giving odds on it and uh, he he says that the chart battle happened because it was either that or a punch-up really yeah, mm. I, th- I think if, if there were odds on that one, mm. I know where my money would be. Yeah, he he also says Oasis had everything to gain and nothing to lose because um, Blur are a bigger band who have sold more records and played bigger gigs. He says, and now they Oasis, <laughs> so there. They, and now they Oasis are a household name. Basically, means off the back of this. And he ends by saying, Ooh. I wouldn't really want to dwell on the Blur v Oasis thing. I think that's last week's thing. Now, if anything, now mm. is the time for reconciliation.
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, pal. I mean, personally, I, I, I took interest in the news story, but to me, it was nothing more than Sonic versus Mario. Right. And while all this is going on, just six months previously, Tupac Shakur has been shot, and he's blaming Puff Daddy and Biggie Smalls for it.
4: And now we've got this kind of handbags between these two you know, yeah. quite affluent bands. And by the way, the whole thing of Oasis yeah. being working class heroes, that's a laugh. I've seen there. I've yeah. seen the big leafy area they, they, they grew up in. Big big front gardens, big back gardens, nice big house. Yeah. You know, just because it's in Manchester and they've got a northern accent, people in the south bought into it big time. Mm. Oh, yeah, the mm. salt of the earth ca- council estate. Yeah, no, they weren't you know they they they're, they're
2: mm. quite quite a nice life yeah only the really true thing that they've got in common with john lennon then really isn't yeah. it?
4: yes yes it is indeed
2: because they were trying to the media the the the, the, the mainstream media uh, were, were were basically saying this is this is beatles versus stones all over again and it clearly wasn't because them two bands got on with each other didn't they yeah
4: yeah they did um but they also um did kind of um, collaborate to stagger the releases of their records, as opposed to make make a stunt out of this. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Just like
2: everyone did. Mm. Sarah, you're the target audience here, aren't you? Really? Did you have a dog in this fight? I
1: I don't really remember. I think it was it was kind of uh, obviously it was a it was a very kind of contrived thing. I think there was quite a good natured sort of tribal thing about it. It was sort of an interesting thing. You don't normally get this kind of gamification of the charts, you know. Yeah. So it was a fun. You know, I think yeah. overall, it's um, it was like a it was a fun it was a fun stunt that we could all follow along with. Um, I don't remember. I mm. yeah, I, I seem to remember there being a lot of kerfuffle around it. I don't remember feeling very strongly myself, but. I think I was I was definitely interested because like I said it's just like which one will it be you can't you know it, it's quite if you're interested yeah. in this stuff at all it's like it doesn't necessarily mean anything yeah. but it's like ooh you know oh who's going to mm. um and now it all seems you know it, it seems like quite a cynical kind of farago but and especially the thing is that both of the songs are quite cynical and sort of lazy iterations of each band's thing um mm. and you know country houses mm. it's kind of um you know li- yeah. listening to it again now and watching it it's like um that you know there is a real kind of smugness and a kind of indolence about it and it, it, it's almost like madness without without any of the charm of, of madness you yeah,
4: know? yeah yeah yeah
1: Um, and I mean, my, my bloke, blur is a dirty Mm. word in our house. So my bloke absolutely loathes them, but he's got that kind of, but anything that they've done. And I think that, um, the thing with blur is that, you know, they needed to, I think they realized that after this, you know, they, they kind of needed to do something different and they did. And they really did, you know, and it's not that they haven't done good stuff before. I mean, there's lots of their stuff. I really love. I'm Mm. just, I will absolutely discard all of this business. And also I'm not sure Mm. I go back and forth on the whole, like, fuck you, play the hits thing. You know, because um, in some ways, like when you create a thing, it doesn't really belong to you anymore; it belongs yeah. to the people. You know, but also you do get it's like Radiohead not playing Creep, and it's like, uh, fuck you, just play it, yeah. all right? Um, but I go back and forth on it because, on the one hand, that, and on yeah. the other hand, like, well, they can do whatever they want and if they feel like they're not. If you you don't want your juvenilia to kind of none of us, you know, really imagine you know when we started out, when we started out doing the things we do, and we started out writing, it's like. Fucking hell! I never want to see any of that again. You know, I don't want people waving that in my face. I don't want to have to like get up and read that out. You know, like the stuff that mm. I, the stuff that I wrote when I was twenty-one. It's like, oh god, it's like mm. your teenage diaries. No, really, it's like no. So they're yeah. probably in some ways. It's like yeah. I think give people a break, really, and also nobody needs to see uh, New Order um, as, as you know in sort of recent iterations. Uh, flogging um Love will Terrors Apart again as as a kind of barnstorming festival mm. walloper. It's like I've seen that happen and it's not a pretty sight. Um mm. anyway, um yeah but the Blur thing no, it, it, it occurred to me that like this is um mm. what happens when you know the stuff that Blur went on to do um which which you know I think is really is a lot of it's really great. It shows what can happen if if artists have the resources and everyone else has the patience to actually develop and mature. And it takes a long time. It takes a lot longer than, than you think a lot of the time. And so few people get to do it. I mean, imagine there's probably all kinds of yeah. there are bands that kind of crashed and burned after doing, yeah. you know, whatever bollocks they managed to get out. And, you know, they become punchlines. And it's like, well, you know, some of them might mm. have gone on, you know, in a different universe that with, you know, if they'd had if they'd had the the kind of the time and, and the, you know, to work on, work on their craft and work on their ideas. They could have, who knows what they could have done. There's just this kind of, I well, just imagine this kind mm. of infinite graveyard of like all the stuff that, that could have been, you know, the talent that, that people might have been able to dread, you know, that the, they might've been able to access given, mm. you know, a certain amount of time. But, you know, imagine if Blur called it a day after this, this yeah. is what they'd be remembered for. And it'd be like, Oof. what was the point in that?
2: Yeah, yeah. That and Park Life, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Jesus, yeah, yeah. because this this performance, this song is is essentially shaking Harley and Mockney <laughs> yeah. Rebel, isn't it?
1: I look. I have to. I have to kind of. Um, I do. I do kind of like you said. I mean, he really is committing. You have to give him that. He's committing to his twattery. I mean, that's really. He's really going for it. And on that Britpop, uh, yeah. the Britpop show, it's like I'm Damon Albarn, and here is Damon Albarn, and blur. Um, and in a deerstalker, capering about, yeah. and he did the whole kind of—I mean, it wasn't just him, but uh, the whole kind of um, eyes, eyes skyward thing. This kind of coquettish, yeah. like coquettish but cynical gesture at the same time. Yeah. kind of—and the the spin that he puts on the word yeah. terminally, you know, terminally. <laughs> and <laughs> I was quite impressed yeah. by that with the eye roll. It's like that's 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 properly cunty, and I have to, you know, I have to. Take my Dear off to it. <laughs>
2: but did you buy either of these songs? No. Nope. Oh. Sarah, you let you let the music industry down there. Uh,
1: did I? Did I really?
2: The history books claim that this was the moment when uh, pop music was ripped away from the Inky's hands and thrust into the uh, tabloids. Did you get a feeling of that when it was happening? Uh, it was
4: death of a thousand cuts, really. I think it had already started yeah. to happen. Um I, yeah, to, to be honest, I, I think uh, they were already beyond our reach mm. by, by this time. We would still go on about them, but to diminishing returns, because if people wanted to read about Blur, they no longer had to go to yeah. the music press to, to, to get yeah. their fix. So, yeah, it was. Uh, I think a lot of people think that Britpop was great for the music press, but it was actually kind of awful, because uh, it, it meant that um, our thing was no longer yeah. our
2: thing. Didn't sales go up, though,
4: around about this time? Unless I'm mistaken, no, they did not. They of right. plateaued,
2: yeah. Was this the last great hurrah of the British music scene? You know, was this the last time when music meant all things to all people and was, was you know, absolute headline news?
4: I think it probably was, because two things happened. First of all, there was the post-Britpop come down, mm. um, which meant that a, a lot of, of, of the bands who were very kind of, you know, chirpy and effervescent um, in 95, 96 were suddenly making their kind of I've taken too many drugs and I hate myself records. Mm. And then you had this wave of bands like Travis and Coldplay coming along mm. who were um, a lot more kind of, how can I put it, uh, that B word, boring mm. again. Um, maybe that's a bit harsh on, on Travis, but, um, but 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 you know what I'm saying. <laughs> it's there was a bit harsh on Coldplay. B- ba- <laughs> bands no longer cared... Uh, what they looked like, but it was all about following the lead of Oasis and aiming for a stadium audience. Yeah. Stereophonics as well, all of that lot came uh, along. Ugh. And um, by the time pop did sharpen up again, it was due to outside forces. It was due to uh, you know the Electro Clash thing coming in from Berlin, and it was due to. Sort of cool bands like like the Strokes and the White Stripes coming from New York and Detroit, mm. and even when the libertine scene started kicking off in Britain, that was very much second wave. That was very much trying to be the British Strokes. Yeah. So, um, and then the internet had come along. By which time, there's all kinds of reasons why why the internet uh, is is the death of kind of scenes, the death of of music scenes. Mm. Uh, everything becomes uh, international at once, and at the same time, somehow meaningless because of that, and and also changeless. Yeah, this this kind of um, never-ending present tense that that we live in because everything is available uh, Mm. at the click of a finger at all times. So so maybe you're right. It's a long-winded way of saying, yes, Al, you're absolutely right. (laughs) It's
2: all right, as long as you got there in the end, Simon. The following week, Country House dropped to number two, toppled from its perch by You Were Not Alone. The follow-up the Universal got to number five in November of this year, and they'd have to wait until February of nineteen ninety seven before they reached number One for the second and last time with Beetle Bum the following month. Blur announced a tour of small seaside venues, including a gig at the Bournemouth Show Bar, two hundred yards away from the Bournemouth International Arena, where Oasis were already booked in on the same night. When Damon Albarn suggested in an NME interview that Blur were going to fly a balloon with the number one over the venue and project the <laughs> Blur logo on the international arena's walls, Oasis pulled out of the gig, claiming that Blur were trying to engineer a mods and rockers situation. And Oasis, of course, followed up roll with it with Wonderwall in November of this year, arguably losing the battle, but winning the war. Yeah, da- Damon Albarn got a lot of shit for the rest of the year, didn't he? Graham Coxon claimed that he came round one night in an absolute state because he was walking to his house, and people were singing "Wonderwall" at him, and you know oh, right. a couple of people tried to lamp him at the same time. Became an absolute hate figure, didn't he?
4: Yeah, he did, and I think kind of blew a scale down, and they scaled down their their ambitions, um, and um, for for the better, really. Uh, mm. Their their music kind of improved a, a little once once they stopped trying to have number ones they still did have number ones but yeah. but they 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 weren't that 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 kind of desperation to please had left them yeah. and i think that's for the better and yeah oasis yeah. went on to become really? this kind of steamroller this steamroll with iting um force yes. you know with, with nebworth <laughs> and all that all that business and they they just went up to a, um, an even higher level um but yeah. i i think it probably worked out quite well for both bands says yeah. yeah i think the music industry
2: won uh, this battle. Yeah.
3: It's an animal farm But you come without harm In the country Oh,
0: fantastic! Listen, oh, I felt that. Next week, Joe Brown is hosting the show and an exclusive from Erasure. Have a great night!
2: Winton gets his arse pinched, automatically paying for all DJ-related crimes upon the general public. Then he threatens us with Joe Brandon Erasure next week and wishes us a great night as the show closes with Scatman's World by Scatman John. We've already discussed Scatman Johnny Chomp Music number 21 and this is the follow-up single to Scatman ski ba bop bop dop which got to number 3 in May of this year. This is the follow-up and the second track from the LP of the same name where Scatman reflects upon the problems of our rubbish planet and invites us to join him on his far superior world instead. Although the video shows him at Liverpool Street Station, London Bridge and Oxford Street. Fuck's sake, I hate Oxford Street. It's like six Luton high streaks lashed together, isn't it? <laughs> it's the seventh new entry on this episode, and it's gone straight in at number fourteen. Dale getting his arse pinched.
1: Yeah, blimey! Do you remember? Have you ever seen that that clip of? Uh, um, this was a, a '60s thing where they um, it was like a kind of soft news item, and they sent uh, they they sent a, a female reporter out to go and like pinch. Pinch the asses of, of men and then ask them how yes. they felt about it. What was that?
2: Yes. What was that? I think it was ATV Today or something She's like that. She just going up
1: behind them and growing. It's like um, oh, like, hello. How do you feel about yeah. that? And Of course, they'd go oh, what? Aren't you? Aren't you adorable? And uh, yes, of course, you can pinch my ass yeah. any time you like. Which I don't. I don't think yeah. that it necessarily uh, did very much good for anyone or for the cause of of anything. But, no. You know.
4: A woman pinched my ass in a bar the other day. Really? I was. Um, oh. Yeah, um, I was carrying a load of drinks, so I couldn't even react and, like, you know, say what what you're doing. Um, I, I had to go and deliver the drinks first, but um, it turned out because she then came up to me, and it turned out that she'd been at a talk that I was on earlier that evening by Catelyn Moran, um, and and I just thought because uh, Catelyn talks a lot about kind of the Me Too thing and all that kind of stuff. Not that I'm comparing mm-hmm. the trivial matter of me having my arse arse pinched to to, to Me Too, but nevertheless, I thought. What bit of her talk did you not understand that you think, um, it's okay to go around pinching men's arses? That's kind of not the deal. Mm. But I thought, oh. rise above it, rise above it. And, uh, oh. yeah, didn't, didn't say a word.
2: You can't kill the spirit, Simon. You are like <laughs> the mountain. <laughs>
1: there is you know that there is definitely a um that there is a difference between it doesn't mean uh, no ass pinching ever but you've got to be it's 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 more than people think it is you know it's kind of more of a more of a yeah. thing than 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 people think like you know i've had my ass yeah. fully grabbed by a man that I didn't know in the street and it was, you know, an extremely unpleasant experience, oh. especially when he did it again, after I, after I asked him what the fuck he thought he was doing. Oh, oh. Um, so that was really unpleasant. But then also, um, I've, I've had my, I've had, I've had a cheek pinched by, um, you know, uh, a, a, an indie musician who, who I knew and liked very much and who, um, and I was, I was like, that's, that's, you know, that could have, that might not have landed in the way that it did, but fortunately it did. And I was, um, I I took it in the spirit that it was meant in, but it's probably not the sort of thing you should go around doing if it's somebody that that you that you don't know or you don't know well enough. You know there needs to be a yeah. certain. Uh, it's like telling somebody that they're a cock. You know you can't uh,
2: essentially write some songs that the person
4: might like. <laughs> so <laughs> who who do we think is is pinching uh, Dale? Could it be Michael Bolton trying to touch him? Dot 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 there.
2: Good point. Who so is it? Yeah. Well, there's somebody who's
1: got their hand very sort of. Um, I couldn't figure out. I was, I was trying to like because there's quite a crowd around him for the first time actually. I think in this episode, he's he's cause yes. it sounds like he's not yeah. doing the kind of crowd thing, and they just do it at the end. Um, mm, yeah. So you know, and there's there's kind of there's somebody kind of with the hand very kind of possessively on his shoulder, and I couldn't figure mm. out if it was like the woman right behind him or the bloke next to him. Like I can't, you know, when you can't see whose hand it, so I'd have to go back and watch this again. But of course, we'll, we'll never know. But I don't know if um, no. you know. It's kind of yeah. I'm not sure how I feel about him. Sort of uh, you know, if he was just reacting to to what was going on, then you know you can't really fault him for it. But um, it is interesting what with the history of it that we know now. It's like what are you uh, what are you saying there? <laughs> you know. Um, mm-hmm. But um, the fact that it's yeah, these these are uh, this is a full a full reversal of what we what we now know was used to be the norm there.
2: Yeah. Are we saying all this to avoid talking about Scoutman John? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, we are, aren't we? Is there anything to say about this? Because we only get 30 seconds of it, after
4: all. Yeah, I mean, his his first hit was, I, I thought, actually pretty great. Um, mm. But this isn't. <laughs> I, I had um, a really bad stutter when I was a teenager. Um, and uh, I wonder, and I still do have it to some extent. It comes and goes, depending on if I'm in a situation that makes me nervous. Like getting
2: your ass pinched. getting my ass pinched by
4: Caitlyn Moran fans. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I do wonder whether I would have found uh, Scatman an inspirational figure, but I'm guessing because he was about fifty and I would have been about thirteen, probably not. No. But bless him for trying. (laughs)
1: Yeah,
4: he was living his best life. I mean, it's it's hard to begrudge him anything, isn't it?
2: So the following week, Scatman's world jumped four places to number ten, its highest position. The follow-up. Song of Scatland <laughs> Fucking hell, that can be so misinterpreted in so many ways. Failed to chart, and he was never heard of again in the UK. Although he became so popular in Japan that his face appeared on Coke cans, and he advertised cosmetics and puddings. <laughs> And that is the end of this episode of Top of the Pops. What's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One piles into EastEnders. There's half an hour of Zoo Watch Live. There's the Maureen Lippman comedy, Agony Again. The nine o'clock news, a repeat of French and Saunders. The first part of Carry On Hollywood, where Carrie Fisher unpacks her life story as the daughter of famous parents. A repeat of the BBC Proms 1995 and finishes with the 1987 adventure movie, The Lion of Africa. BBC2 is about to screen Richard Ingrams on the trail of Malcolm Muggeridge's wartime spy career in Mozambique in the documentary series African Footsteps. Then Wildlife Showcase focuses on the singing apes of Khao Yai in Thailand. And then there's a repeat of whatever happened to the likely lads, the blitz of England's historic buildings in One Foot in the Past, Grace Under Fire, a newsnight special on the first anniversary of the IRA ceasefire and finishes off with two ceasefires and a wedding, the Northern Irish comedy drama about love through the barricades. ITV is running The Bill, a repeat of The Upper Hand, the final part of Catherine Cooks and Path, News at 10, the Canadian law firm series Street Legal, Just a Minute with Tony Slatteret, Lisa Goddard, Wendy Richard and... Dale Winton, and then piles into night time while Channel 4 is showing The Black Bag, the documentary series about Feltham Young Offenders and Remand Centre, the fashion show Very G Muir, the documentary show War Cries about the mining industry, then the 1993 film Visions of Murder, Just for Laughs with Emo Phillips, and rounds off the night with Good and Bad Ideas of the 20th Century. So me dears! What are we talking about in the playground tomorrow?
1: Um, country house, inevitably in that that whole that whole business, I think.
2: Mm. Even though it's two weeks past now.
1: Yeah, well, you know, but out of out of what what there was, I think that's probably what I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's not going to be Scatman. It's not going to be Scatman John. I'm afraid. Sorry. Matt.
4: No. 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 <laughs> I mean, I think, and this is a sign of uh, partly where my life was at, and partly where Top of the Pops was at. Nothing. Um, you know, mm. it was uh, it was a show that was becoming less central to people's lives, certainly yeah. mine. Yeah. And um, I, I don't even think I bothered watching this episode. What were we buying on Saturday? Again, I'm not being a smart ass, but I'm going to say nothing. For the first mm. time, for the first ever Chart Music podcast, there's A, literally nothing in this um, show that I particularly liked. And B, um, I didn't need to buy records because I was getting them sent to me for nothing. So there we <laughs> go. Sorry, um, you know, sorry. It's
1: like, yeah, even if you were, you know, imagine yourself as, you know, a sort of 10-year-old boy at this point, you know, like, it's no, still... Nothing. Yeah, still nothing. Um, yeah, probably Echo Belly. I mean, I didn't, you know, um, mm. but uh, I might have done if it was, you know, if it's... if it's I had to choose then, yeah.
2: And what does this episode tell us about August 1995?
4: I think, in a way, stuff was still up for grabs. I think there was still a battle, you know, between the good guys and the bad guys in culture, um, and... That there was a possibility that we we could save things and it wouldn't all go to absolute shit. There was still a certain amount of optimism, um, but I think it's easy to say this in retrospect, of course. Mm. But you can see also that we were doomed. <laughs> we're doomed. We're mm-hmm. doomed. Doomed.
1: Yeah, I think it, it it says probably that it's a it's a year that kind of won't live in as much infamy as it thought that it would at the time.
2: And that my dears is the end of another episode of Chart Music. All that remains for me to do now is fling the usual URLs at you, which are ww.chart-music.co.uk, Facebook.com slash chartmusic podcast, and you can join us on Twitter at chartmusic T O T P. But more importantly, fling us some dollar at patreon.com slash chartmusic. Thank you very much, Simon Price. You're welcome. Tart ever so, Sarah B.
1: Cheers, love.
2: My name's Al Needham, and if you're banking on a wanking, I'm the man that you'll be thanking. <laughs> that was my uh, catchphrase when I was David Dick. I forgot to, <laughs> forgot to put that in earlier.
3: Chart <laughs> music.
2: Right, I promised this to the Pop craze Youngsters earlier. I, I can't walk away from it. Here is the greatest porn letter ever written to a wank mag. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not so sure about the, uh, the actual factual content. I, I, I'm kind of convinced that this might not have happened, but it's still wonderful. So, here we go. I was home alone the other night, watching football on Sky. Liverpool were one all with Man United with 10 minutes to go. I had just taken a Viagra pill four hours earlier and shagged my girlfriend four times until she went to work at a local hospital. I had cooked myself some sausages and was lying there in front of the TV quite relaxed, chomping on my sausages. I looked down and my old fellow was staring back at me with its one eye closed almost as if it were winking at me to play with it. I was impressed. I had never seen it so big before. It was laying on my belly, stiff as a board, staring at me. The head was laying just below my chest as I lay on my back. I wonder, I thought, as I removed my jeans and rolled my legs up over and behind my head. My penis slid straight into my mouth. It was a curious feeling, giving myself a head job. The head made it in just over my front teeth. I was used to deeper penetration when my girlfriend was giving it to me, but I wasn't complaining. I sucked myself off for five minutes, thoroughly enjoying myself. I don't know how it happened, but I think the Viagra was making me really horny but I decided to shove one of the cooked sausages up my arse while I sucked myself off. It felt great. I was dizzy from being upside down, but the sausage up the arse really did it. I was going to come any minute now and started moaning out loud. This was definitely the best sex I had ever received, and it was all from myself. Before I knew it, the dog trotted up over to me. (laughs) after being woken by my moans of pleasure and started eating the sausage out of my arse. (laughs) Initially, I was shocked and attempted to hit the dog with my belt that was laying beside me, but I missed the dog and hit myself on the arse. (laughs) Oh, God, it felt great. So I kept on hitting myself on the arse, not too hard, mind you, to scare the dog away, which had finished the part of the sausage that was sticking out of my arse and was attempting to remove the other half inside with broad sweeping movements of his long, wet, rough tongue. It was great, lying there on my back giving myself a head job, being growled out by my dog and whacking my arse with my belt. I began to moan louder with pleasure while the dog began to growl in frustration at not being able to remove the stuck sausage. The dog gave up using his tongue and propped itself up on my arse with its two front paws and began nibbling at my anus with its front incisors, gnashing them down quickly, searching for the elusive bit of sausage, growling and chomping. I thought it couldn't get any better until all at the same time, the dog removed the remaining bit of sausage, I came into my mouth, And Michael Owen scored the winner for Liverpool. (laughs) It was the best night of my life.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.